Looks like we're up and running pretty smoothly this week. Hello, everyone. Thank you for stopping by um, for episode seven of our Merged Worlds Dungeons and Dragons story stream. Uh, pretty excited to keep going with that tonight. I really enjoy these streams. It's a lot of fun and uh, really like sharing the story with folks. So I'm excited to have the opportunity to do it. And everything seems to be working correctly this week, which is nice. Last week it died on us partway through and I had to quickly open up another one. So, forewarning, if anything were to happen by any chance and the game and the stream does crash, give it just a minute and another one will pop up on the channel. Hopefully that won't happen though. At least not two weeks in a row. Last couple streams for other things haven't had that problem, so I think I've got that fixed. Uh, but let's see. So we'll give it a few minutes for everybody to show up. I know we always have people show up in the first five or ten minutes, but um, we have some cool stuff this week. I'm going to be showing you guys the uh, new art for Merged Worlds. I um, actually just got that literally within the last five minutes sent to me. Uh, so Shadow Cass, who does all of my art, uh, she designs all the stuff for my merchandise, for my channel, all the logos, all that kind of stuff, all the ODG stuff uh, she's done. Um, she does phenomenal work, and she's been working for me for the last week or so, putting together some Merged World stuff, because I really wanted to have a bit uh, more of a cohesive um, icon and such for the stream, as well as for the iTunes um, description banner and stuff like that. So, and then I want to have some Merged World merch, even if nobody else buys it, I want it, so uh, I wanted something to be able to put on there. So she's uh, she got that all put together, and uh, I'd seen some proofs over the last few days, and she actually got that to me just about five minutes before I streamed here today, which is awesome timing. So I'm going to show some of that off here today. Uh, like I said, we'll give it a little bit, let let some people arrive. But thank you for very much for coming by and hanging out with us on the stream today. Uh, so Merged Worlds, if you're new, uh, this is a Dungeons & Dragons story slash campaign that I have been uh, writing and running with different groups uh, for a little over 25 years at this point. I've been DMing for over 30 but uh, this stuff I really started in high school, and I've been working the same world and storyline ever since. So it's a very homebrew game. Uh, when I run my stuff, it's, it's evolved a lot. I, I, I primarily play 2nd Edition, um, Advanced and Dragons, but I do homebrew it. So I've pulled stuff from other editions and even other role-playing games to kind of design my own way of playing. So uh, it's been pretty successful. I've always had good feedback on the people that I've run games for. Um, Never really had anyone not want to come back. Hello, Neon. Thank you very much, sir, for stopping by today. Appreciate it. So, Merge World is a homebrew world that I've created myself. I've got my own pantheon of gods and all that kind of stuff. I've talked about a lot of that in the previous episodes of this story. Uh, so I'm just going to touch on a little bit of that just to, for anyone who might be tuning in. The first six episodes, actually six and a half, it was like a ten minute 0.5 episode from last week where it crashed before I was 10 minutes done. Um, but all of that is all based on this same story. And uh, some brothers had some problems. Big boom. Universe destroyed. Everything is thrown together. Now we have one massive new world and everybody there is trying to figure out what's going on and how to get home. The briefest of overviews. Um, but over the last uh, few weeks, we've been dealing with our primary characters. Uh, it's two groups of four. They were one large group, and they've been put on a quest uh, by a demigod named Zoltan, who 
basically said there's these magical artifacts out there. Uh, they're the cause of all this turmoil. And if I can get them back, I should be able to fix everything. Um, but I can't directly intervene, so I need you to go get these back for me. They're distributed around this area of the world. Um, this world is huge, but the items are all within a relative radius, not all over the world, if you will. Um, and at the same time, warned them that there's some type of evil, something he's going to describe as a darkness, that's also seeking them out as well. Um, and you've got to get them before they do. Kind of the, the dice. So the our group traveled uh, through a portal that he opened up, managed to go into a kingdom, get the first item. Um, the, they have a couple of necklaces that if they spin them, it kind of shoots like a laser pointer light in the direction of the closest magical artifact. Um, and they got to a certain point where it started pointing in two directions at once. So the group split into two. Um, four of them went east, uh, which was Willow, the elven druid, Mercy, the uh, she's a human warrior, uh, Darsh, who's a minotaur warrior, and Fig, who is a gnome warrior. Uh, who's raised by dwarves. So while he is no mission stitcher, he acts more like a dwarf than anything else. Um, his parents were killed. He was taken in by dwarves. So even though he's a tinker known by birth, dwarven warrior by trade. So we followed them on their adventures, and now we're, we're working on group two, the group that went west. And that is Artemis, the elven cleric of healing. Um, Shadow, the elven ranger. Uh him and her, and then there is Dandelion, just known as Dandy, who is a Kender rogue. Uh, she's the sneaky of the group, her and Shadow. And that also leaves us with uh, Zarin, who is a, a halfling mage. And in last week's episode, we were dealing with them. They were, they'd been traveling for quite a while. We're getting real close to turning back to go to the meeting place to meet the other group. Because there was a, a deal they'd come up with. If they didn't find anything with a certain period of time, they would go back and meet up and then make a better decision. Uh, the other group never did turn around, um, and this group didn't either, because they saw uh, what were some ogres, I believe it was, you know, they were taking um, had, like slaves, if you will, and were taking them into this mine. They went in there uh, because their little necklace was showing them that's where they needed to go. They fought their way through there. Uh, while they're in one room where literally bodies and rock and trash was on a conveyor belt that just poured off into a, a river of lava. Uh, they were fighting. Some of the creatures defeated them, um, and Dandy manages to save uh, a human who was still alive in there, um, who was a young man named Michael. We introduced Michael last week. Uh, this is what Michael looks like. That's the actor that we use for Michael. Um, and he was on almost on death's door, but uh, using... Artemis is healing. They managed to get him healed up enough that he uh, basically swore a oath of, I will, you save me, now I have to stay with you to protect you kind of thing. They don't know a lot about him. Everything was really busy at the time, but he joined them in the fight. Um, they fought their way through the mines, saved a bunch of slaves, and then at the end of it fought a uh, halfling cleric of death uh, who, at the end, of the, they were fighting, there were some ogres as well, and, and they were doing pretty well. Um, then the ogre, or not the ogre, the, uh, the cleric cast a spell at Zarin because they were kind of having a magic fight there. Um, Zarin was doing well, uh, but he hit him with this, a spell of death and decay. And it's almost like acid and his skin started to burn real bad. They managed to heal him 
and such as best they could, um, but there was a lot of damage done to at least part of his face, which we're going to get into a little bit more here. They uh, still defeated him, uh, but before they did, they found that there was a drow, um, we'll just say male, you know, if he's a warrior or a rogue or what. If you're not familiar with what a drow is, it's an evil elf that are normally found uh, in many situations deep underground. They don't come to the surface, but of course, Merge World changes all the rules, so it's possible that they are. Um, but he has obviously the one artifact they're looking for, and, and he takes off. They heal Zarin and such, and they try to catch up with him, but by the time they get out of the little tunnel that exits out of the caves and such they're in, off in the distance they can see uh, that drow with several other drow riding off on horses. They don't have any type of horses, so, and they're pretty hurt and injured. They're, they're going to have to camp for a day or so to recoup their spells, heal their wounds before they can carry on, so they need to, they need to chase this drow. But at the same time, you know, they, they're, they're going to have to give some time. So hopefully their little amulet thing will lead them there. So that's a recap kind of where we left off last week. Um, again, before I jump right into the story, I'm going to real quickly show off the new art by um, Shadowcast. And if you go to my YouTube page and you look at who I follow and, and what sites of interest. Shadowcast is on there as well. Um, I definitely recommend checking out her page. Uh, she does awesome art. She has a, a sticker store named Sticknetic, where she does custom art stickers that she designs. Uh, she also does, obviously, consignment art. She does all mine. She's got really, really, really good work uh, at very affordable prices. So if you're looking for something like that, she doesn't sponsor me here. She's just a friend of mine who does all my work, and I appreciate it. Uh, so if you're interested in getting any work done yourself, highly recommend checking out her page. Um, but... What I wanted was a symbol for Merged Worlds. Um, but to me, the Merged world symbol has always been synonymous with the Firemoon Brothers, where it all started. And Rafe Firemoon, who ended up being the hero of the two brothers, uh, he had a, 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 a sigil of his own. And that's what I kind of wanted to build off for Merged Worlds. So um, what, we're do what we've got for the Firemoon banner is there. That's, that's basically going to be the icon for Merged Worlds. Um, there's one that um, has a little bit more yellow in the flames. It's not as multicolored, um, and that's because some of the things I printed, like shirts and such, the different shadings of colors, it's a little bit harder for that to do that, especially if it's something embroidered. Uh, so that one's more for things that are embroidered. This is what you'd see if you were to get it on a shirt, and this is what you're going to see on uh, thumbnails. I'm going to redo the thumbnail for, for this Merge World episode, maybe even the older ones as well. Um, you'll see that pop up. I'm about to color, cover up my ugly mug here for a minute. Um, and this is what the Merge Worlds banner looks like. Uh, this is what you'll see if you go to iTunes and you're looking for Merge Worlds um, as the audio podcast. Um, that's what we're looking like for that. Um, and I've got a couple different sized ones for different types of usage. Like iTunes has to be square. Um, thumbnails is rectangular like that and so on. So yeah. Um, very, very happy with the way it turned out. The quarter moon on fire. Uh, well, it's the whole moon, but only the quarter moon's visible. Uh, it's really, really the design that I was shooting for. So I'm, I'm really, really happy with it and the colors that we went with. So uh, it's funny because she would send me options and say, "Do you like which one of these do you like the best?" And every one that I picked is the same one that she liked the best. Like that's one reason why we work so well together. I mean, she's been one of my best friends for a very long time, and so she knows how this twisted mind works in many ways. Okay, so that's our recap. We're going to go ahead and jump into the story. Um, before I proceed, I will say, um, if it's your first time here, whether you're listening to this live or watching it later, um, if you wouldn't mind 
If you haven't already, if you like the video, click like on that. But more importantly, make sure you subscribe to the channel. That way you can see all my videos and tutorials as they come out. If you're listening to this on iTunes as an audio podcast, thank you very much for checking us out there. Um, if you wouldn't mind smacking a rating on there as well, if you'd like to re- re- leave a review, that would be awesome. I'd love to hear your feedback and what you think. Um, uh, in either case, uh, it is, of course, free on YouTube or free on iTunes. There's no cost for this. Um, there is a link to the new uh, or to the official Only Draven Gaming uh, Discord down in the description of this video, or you can go to my website, onlydraven.com. At the top of the first page will be a link that will let you sign up for the Discord. Uh, we talk about Merge Worlds in there, as well as Minecraft and different other things. So if you'd like to directly reach out about some Merge World stuff, maybe you have some questions or things that you'd like to see on the stream, um, definitely jump in the Discord and join up with us. Um, we chat in there all the time, and I'd love to hear your feedback on there as well. So please feel free to swing on by. Um, of course, that's all free. We also have the ODG store opened on there. Um, over the next day or so, I'll be working on getting the Merged World stuff up there as well. So I should have some Merged World hats and shirts and stickers and such uh, available on the website in the next couple of days. So, jumping right into it. Last thing we left off, um, like I said, they had just come out of the mines um, through kind of a backdoor tunnel that they chased the drow out of. But the drow and his minions, and I can't remember if I said how many there were. And if I told you a number, forget that one, this is the right one. It was him and five other drow that they could see um, on horses, and they were taking off towards the west, almost straight west, maybe a little bit north, but west to west, uh, northwest. So the party really want to chase after them. They know that they've got that artifact, but that's a drow who himself seemed very confident, and if you'll remember, was also very concerning because he seemed to know about them. Maybe not them specifically, but knew someone else was looking for these. Um, and hinted that he's taking it to who he contr- who he works for. So he's obviously a minion of that darkness we mentioned earlier, um, and they want to get the artifact for Zoltan before it gets to bad darkness thing. So they can't really do that in their situation. A, they don't have any type of horses or mounts to catch up with them. Uh, B, Zarin is barely alive at this point. The healing's just keeping him this side of conscious. Um, and Michael is still really injured and weak from everything he's been through. Um, so they determined they're going to have to at least get a little ways away from the cave, get up into the trees where it's a little bit more defensible, especially for Shadow and Dandy. Um, they get up in there, and you know they, they're going to be pretty good at even setting some traps, and um, Shadow is very, very talented with his bow. Dandy's really good with daggers and her hoopak, which is a uh, staff sling. So they're very, very going to have a very easier time defending themselves in the trees. So they do travel a little bit, um, although it's it's very slow going with as bad off as Zarin is, who at times is almost unconscious. He's just in and out of recollection. Um, which concerns them a little bit, because they're like, God, I hope he doesn't accidentally spit out a spell. They don't really know as much about magic as he does. Well, Artemis does, but she's a cleric, and her magic is very different than his. Uh, so wizard magic, it's, it's hard to just accidentally cast a spell, but uh, not impossible. So they make it up into the trees to an area that they feel is relatively defensible. And they basically have to camp out there for a day or two. Um, Artemis, of course, has to rest herself, do her daily prayers and blessings. Hopefully her god will shine down on her and provide her with spells for the day, which he always has and he does in these situations as well, which then he she uses on the party, but primarily on Michael and Zarin. Um, Artemis is a very devout cleric, um, and she's very powerful. I guess if you're looking at it from the game point, she's very powerful for her level. Uh, She has some pretty high stats, especially when it gets into the wisdom and intelligence. Um, And so she uh, has a lot of bonus spells. So she's, even though she's at this point in the story, low-ish level, uh, she's healing almost better than a couple levels above her. 
and because of how devout she is and such, that helps as well. Um, but even with her healing, she you know she can only do so much. She, she doesn't have the high level spells. She's not a an arch cleric or a high cleric or anything of that nature yet. Which the cleric hierarchy is something that we'll discuss later on in the story. It's not important right now, but it will become um, later as different characters are um, actually dealing with different organized religions in the world. Um, so I do have a hierarchy for all that kind of stuff. It's pretty standard based on the second edition Dungeons Dragons hierarchy with a few alterations. So they're resting and such. Zarin, they're able to heal pretty much all of his wounds with the exception of his one eye. Uh, his eye literally exploded from the acid, and it was just pouring on his face. They managed to heal the wound, um, but he is missing an eye at this point. And it is beyond Artemis's capability to heal that. Um, and he's in and out of it for about uh, for a good 24 hours. Um, and Michael, who his issue is more just weakness and malnutrition, um, he didn't have any other than, you know, he's got wounds from being flashed or beaten or, or, or stabbed of that nature. He has a lot of wounds on him. I mean, you'd think that he was like in a hundred wars, the amount of stuff, but how bad he was treated in there, he doesn't talk about it a whole lot. Um, he stays to himself very much, although he's constantly given a weird eye to, to Dandy. He seems to always be keeping an eye on her. And he's, ever since the beginning, both Shadow and Artemis noticed he's been kind of giving her the, the weird look. Uh, but he doesn't do anything overtly against her, say anything odd. In fact, nine times out of ten, he's he makes a point of staying relatively close to her, um, especially with you know, her being a kender and a natural thief. She steals things without realizing it. Um, he seems to be kind of watching that and seeing how she how she acts around the rest of the group. Um, he does give them a little information about himself. Um, he is the son of a knight, grandson of a knight. He's from a long line of knights. Um, he doesn't give them the name. There's a reason for that. We'll give the name later. But he belongs to an order of knights, and he has uh, just recently been a knight himself for less than you know, less than a year. He said he's a young guy, but um, with his family ties and, and his personal experience, uh, he re- rose through the training pretty quick. Um, and he'd been one for less than a year when he and uh, several other knights were helping defend a town that was having a problem. The merge happened. Um, and then he and one of his other knights and one of their squires were kind of there together and everyone else was lost and they were kind of wandering around um, and then they were set upon by a group of ogres uh, in the night while they were sleeping. Um, the other two were killed. He was the only one that survived. He was enslaved and he's been in the mines really since the first few weeks of the merge. So he was just starting to learn what had happened. He didn't know a lot about it and he's learning a lot of that from them and he's a little bit blown away because he's like just like everybody else and after the merge it's like well, where are we? Where's my home? Is any of my friends or family alive? How do I get back to my friends and family? And he's been a pretty stalwart ally so far, so they loosely give him a little bit of what they're looking for, that they're on a quest uh, by a demigod, came to them and said, hey, you've got to gather these things and we can set things back to normal, hopefully. Because they never said for sure. He said, hopefully. Um, and that they're on, they're trying to get these back. That's why they are in there, and that's why they're now going to have to chase the drow. Um, Michael is like, well, yeah, uh, that makes total sense. Um, I, I'm already sworn to stay by your sides and help protect you in your. And now I'm going to help you in your quest. Um, it doesn't really give them a lot of choice in the matter. Um, but he's he's a talented warrior. He doesn't have any real gear on him other than what little bit of extra stuff they had. Um, but once they you know, he, he, if you get, get him a couple good weapons, uh, he, he can hold his own. 
He's being a knight. He's used to wearing in full armor. And he usually uses a, a sword and shield himself, a classic uh, long sword and shield. Um, or he can use a broadsword, depending. He, those are his two weapons of choice. He can use a lance as well, but, you know, that that lances don't come up uh, as useful as you'd think in Dungeons & Dragons. Not a lot of lancing going on, unless you're in large-scale battles. Although, I like to throw large-scale battles in. Occasionally, we will see some of those down the road. But uh, Michael's like, okay, cool. Well, I'm part of the gang now, so let's go do what we gotta do. Um, Zarin finally, after almost two days of rest, comes out of it. He's feeling a lot better. He's able to eat and drink. Um, he is very unhappy about his situation. I mean, wouldn't you be? Um, you wake up, you're in pain, and you realize one of your eyes is gone. You've been disfigured. Um, his hands were burned as well, but um, Artis, Artemis managed to heal those where there's some scarring, but they're, they're fully movable. And that was the first thing that Zarin worries about. Like, he goes off on his own, and he, you know, can I cast my spells? Do I have the dexterity that I need? Am I able to talk? Was I damaged in that way? And he was not. It really hit his eye almost to his ear. It's just like, almost like he, uh, it hit him. It's not like a two-faced two situation. It's not that bad. But it, it hit his eye and then across the side to just got a bit of his ear. And it's now all just like a scar tissue, and he's missing a little bit of hair in this area. But he, uh... You know, overall, he can talk just fine. He can see fine out of the other eye. Nothing wrong with that. And his hands, while a little bit scar tissue-y, a little bit stiff at times, they're still nimble enough that he can cast all the spells that he needs to. So, um, he very, very quickly... was He was already kind of the negative Nancy of the group, if you will. I mean, he was always the one who was more for profit, more for this and that. Um, and Zarin now is, is even more upset. You know, he's like, I've... We don't even... We're barely got any of these artifacts yet, and I've already lost an eye. You know, people are probably going to die before this is done. We don't even know if this is going to work, all because a demigod popped up one day and said, do this and I can get you home. If he didn't have such a drive to get back to his family, his clan, um, he would just give it all up and go on his own. But now in the back of his mind, he's thinking, okay, you know, at first he's really angry about it. He goes off on his own, just, you know, an hour or two, kicking rocks and throwing things at it, in the woods, kicking branches, breaking things. But as he starts thinking about it, Zarin, well, a little bit self-serving, is very intelligent. Very intelligent. And he starts thinking about this, and he's like, okay, well, if I can get these artifacts, and I can get them to this demigod, if he can fix a world, he should have no problem fixing my eye. That, that's nothing. If he can put the worlds back the way they were with these artifacts, then something as minor as an injury... Maybe that's not so bad. Maybe if I have these artifacts, I'm like, yeah, okay, I'm going to give them to you, but first, you need to fix this. And anything else that's wrong with me? He's like, and so he starts thinking, he's like, okay, this may be a bit of leverage then, even though he's injured, and this is a wound that hopefully will be able to be fixed by the demigod. Using this as a bit of a, hey, I did this for you. This is what we've sacrificed. You need to give us back something. He starts thinking, okay, maybe I can come out ahead on this. Um... And that's kind of how he, he thinks in almost any situation. When everything's bad, he starts thinking, okay, well, how can I turn this around? How can, how can we benefit from this? And again, not in an evil way, but in a bit of a self-serving way. He's from a family of businessmen, mages, who sell their services to those who can afford them. You know, um, Usually, relatively, I would say they're a very neutral group. Um, he's not, they're not good, they're not evil, they're just very cross the middle. And, uh, you know, they're not overly bad. They don't go out and get hired to murder families and stuff like that. They turn down 
thing. Because again, from a business point of view, who else is going to hire you if you're known for that? So they make good business decisions. Um, and so he starts thinking about how he can turn this around. And so he comes back to the group and they determine, okay, they're going to they're going to finish out the evening, because it's about evening time at this point. They're going to finish out the night here. Then they're going to head off, kind of going after where the drow are. Um, they know they're a good distance behind, um, but spinning their little necklace, still shows the same direction that the drow went, which still leads them to believe that they're still at least the closest one, and they may not realize they have this, because I'll be honest, if, if he did, they might have they made a bigger deal of trying to take them away from them, because this is a clear way for them to track him. And so they've got a head start, but they may not realize how well they're going to be able to track them because of those magical armlet, the magical amulet that Artemis wears. So um, that's kind of where we go. So that next morning after resting, everybody's pretty well rested up. Uh, there's a small stream nearby. They've refilled their water supplies. Uh, Michael learns about the chest of holding. He didn't really know much about it before, uh, but he sees they've got that magical chest that lets them get down in there and get some stuff, some loot, if you will. Um, and it's pretty handy. And so... They then proceed west. And they travel for a good good distance. I mean, they travel for probably a good week, week and a half before they come across any signs of civilization. Um, and the first sign they find is a road. I mean, the road is actually going from like, southeast to, to northwest. Okay, so I guess do it the opposite way. If you're looking at the camera, it's kind of going this direction. They're coming this way, and it's going that direction. And yes, I'm doing it backwards, so you're seeing it the right way. Um... And they don't really see any buildings. The road itself looks like a pretty well-kept road. They're showing just the tiniest bit of disrepair at this point. So the road was clearly existed well before the merge. Is anybody using it now? Shadow gets on it and says, yes, he has seen those wagon tracks and such. So somebody's been on the road at least within the past week or so. Um, there was light rain, so it's, it's hard to know. You know, here's horse tracks. Are they the drow they're looking for? They're like, okay, well, what are we going to do? And they spin their little amulet and it starts showing still to the west... Um, but a little bit more northwest now, but not quite as strict as the road. So it doesn't look like the, the drought took the road. But they decide, okay, we're going to stick a bit more to the road. As long as it's still going in that relative direction, maybe we can come across a settlement, get some supplies, maybe get some horses of our own. Um, if we can get a horse. Or, Zarin doesn't know how to ride a horse. He's, he's, one thing he's never learned, but maybe if he can get a hold of a wagon or something, there's a road going that direction, at least maybe they can make some better time or he can jump on the back of Shadows and try to, try to catch up to these drow. So they follow that road for, for a little while, and they come across um, a wagon. And as they're approaching the wagon in the distance, they see the wagon's just kind of sitting there and not moving. And they don't see any horses attached to the wagon. So immediately, Shadow stops the group, and him and Dandy talk for a moment, and Danny nods and she slides off her horse and kind of goes off the side of the road. There's a little bit of a hill there and kind of goes off into some, some bushes and such. Because um, it's not like a forest, but it's a little bit of vegetation. Um, so she's kind of going around about. Uh, Shadow gets off his horse, pull, knocks his bow, gets an arrow ready. And then he just slowly starts walking towards the wagon. Artemis and... Z I mean, they're not on horses. I don't always say horses. They're not on horses. I apologize. I was just talking about horses a minute ago. Threw me off. They say uh, Shadow starts going ahead with his bow. Um, Artemis and um, Zarin are kind of staying back, and Michael's staying with them. He still has the sword 
that they had, which was an okay sword, and it's something that he can use. They had, he had, they had an old, uh, or an older small shield that was Mercy's in the chest of holding as well. So he's got a sword and a shield at this point. Uh, so he's decently armed. He doesn't really have a lot of armor. Uh, there wasn't much in there that would fit him. Even he's, if you remember, very small in size. He's barely, barely bigger than Dandy. I mean, Dandy's like three foot something, but he's barely over five. He's like five foot one, five foot two. He's very small for a human. Although he has assured them, yes, I'm all human, I, but my mother was very small. My father was very tall. I take after my mother in that regard. So, that being said, Dandy being sneaky sneaky, she's making her way around and she's listening for noise and she doesn't hear anything at all uh, coming from the wagon. I mean, there's nature sounds, of course. And Shadow is just walking straight up the road, but he's really not looking in front of him. Even though he's walked up there, he's watching more on the sides. He's looking for some type of ambush. He's waiting for someone to come up. Like I said, the road's a little bit elevated. It kind of goes down into a bit of ditch, and then there's vegetation that could be almost waist-high there at times. So he's assuming there's some type of an ambush here. And he's getting closer, and then he hears Dandy call out. Because as Dandy approached from the side, um, before she even saw anything, she could smell it. And it just, the smell of death, and it was bad. And she gets up close enough, and she can see that the horses are in the ditch next to her, and they, they're, they're dead. And not friendly. They're, they've been butchered. She can also see bodies up on the road. So she calls out to, to Shadow, and they have this bird noise syndrome system that, that the group uses that they, the players came up with themselves. Um, several of the party members actually... Had took skills in the ability of like nature craft to be able to do that. Shadow and Dandy both had that. So they came up with their own little speak of, of bird whistles and noises that mean specific things. And there are several people in the group that know how to use those. Um, Willow, of course, is one. Dandy is one. Shadow is one. And Mercy was learning. Mercy was, is, is, was picking up a little bit on that until the groups kind of split apart. Um, even though she's with Willow, they've just got, you know, they're down under the ground right now. They've got bigger problems to deal with besides bird noises. And, you know, there's no birds down there, so it's not going to sound natural anyway. Um, but Shadow and uh, Dandy are very good at it. And so when I say Dandy calls out to him, it's a noise that he understands. So he rushes forward and he waves the rest of the group. They go up there. Um, they find five bodies total. Um, three of them were adults. One of them looks like a teenager. One of them is a child. Um, and just like the horses, they've been very, very violently killed. Um, they start looking for tracks around. Of course, Shadow and, and, and Dandy start looking for tracks because they see, is there maybe someone still around here? They're being careful. Zarin and um, Artemis are kind of looking at the bodies as bad as it is. They're, you know, Artemis immediately starts giving last rites. Zarin starts searching the wagon, not for loot, but more for clues. And Michael's standing near them, kind of guarding them while trying to keep an eye on Shadow and Dandy, who aren't disappearing at this point. They're staying visible just in case something does pop up. Um, after a few moments, Dandy and Shadow come back. There's, they can't find any source of anyone still in the area. Whatever has done this is gone. And from the looks of the body, it had to have happened at least a few days ago. And they start inspecting it. You know, they're looking for clues. That's what you do in these situations. And they very quickly realize that whatever killed the horses and whatever killed the people was bladed weapons. It's not a wild animal. There's no marks from, you know, wolves, you know, teeth marks of claws, anything of that nature. It's, it's definitely bladed weapons that caused this. And did so without 
any remorse. You could see it was it was very violent in the way that it was done. And the wagon itself, pretty much fine. You can, they can still see there's some type of wares in the back. It looks like it's a covered wagon. You think your classic, you know, going out west wagon. It's a classic covered wagon. Um, and in the back are some of the personal possessions of the family. Um, looks like they, they were maybe coming from a home somewhere else, like they were moving, if you will. Um, there wasn't a lot there, but they even find a, you know, some, some, a couple coins, a couple pieces of relatively cheap jewelry, but could be worth a few things. Things that the average um, thief, brigand, however you want to pronounce it, brigand, it's, I know five different ways, um, would have normally taken that. But it doesn't even look like the wagon's been searched. And that's what you'd expect more from an animal. But in this situation, it was clearly blades. And Shadow um, and Dandy looking around the wagon and everything, they only come up with one set of clues. And that is near the wagon, because again, I mentioned it's rained a little bit. The wagon itself was, like I said, the road is, is, is up, so the water's kind of racing off it. Under the edge of the wagon, they find a couple of footprints. So imagine if someone was standing near the wagon, the feet pressed into the ground, the rain coming down, sitting the wagon is coming off the side and kind of going down the road, so it's a little wet there, so the, the footprint isn't pristine, but it didn't have direct rain coming down on it because the wagon, if you know, they cover, stick out a little bit more than the bottom. Um, only light rains hit that, so and they, then it washes off the, the up, into the ditches because the road's elevated. Long explanation to say they found a footprint, I know, but I, this is how I explained to them why there'd still be a footprint there. And Shadow very, very quickly realizes that it is an elven-style boot. It's a thinner, pointed marteau, um, something that's more um, elven-shaped elven than human. Uh, Gaming Gates says, I'm back. Well, thank you very much, Gaming Gates. I appreciate you coming back. Um, so they find the footprint, and it's elven. Now, the people that are dead are human. I didn't clarify that a minute ago. I apologize. I should. All five of the bodies are human. They look enough alike what you can tell through the the grisly violence, um, you could tell that they were all probably of the same family. The group discusses it a little bit, and the only thing they can come up with was the drow. Um, but the, again, the drow didn't take anything from these people, um, killed their horses, killed them, and then like they cut the leathers that held the horses. They cut those. It's like they led the horses off the road and then killed them. Um, there's been no other signs. It doesn't look like there's any other tracks, like any other traffic's come on this road recently. So the party at first is like, okay, well, why would they have done this? They didn't do it just hate. Did they do it just for the fun of killing? Drow are notoriously evil people. But still, going out of your way to stop and take a murder break um, is seems odd. So they're like, okay, we're, there's not much we can do here. Um... They take a little bit of time to bury the dead. They don't can't do much for the horses. But they take an hour or so to bury the dead because they're good people, even though they know it's putting them behind schedule, keeping them further and further behind the drow. Um, they do their best to give last rites and, and bury the folks. Uh, they do take a few things. They find a value um, in the wagon. There's no sense just leave them out here. Someone else is going to take them anyways. Um, they don't find anything that they could find, like personal effects, like letters or anything of that nature that they could deliver to someone saying, hey, these people died. They say, okay, at this point we need to carry on. So they continue up the road. And they travel for a good two or three days after that, without any type of incidents. They don't see any more tracks on the road. They don't come across any more 
wagons or people. In fact, they don't come across anything that would lead them to believe there's been any traffic through this way in a very long time. Um, and they're watching the amulet. You know, they're spinning it every so often to check. And while it's still not heading this exact direction they're going, it's also not going further. So it's almost like they're they're almost going parallel with the with the with the drow. Because again, if you think of the drow going this way and this going this way, the light would be shining eventually more and more down as they're kind of getting above them. But it's really not. It's almost staying the exact same direction, like they're making a parallel, uh, parallel run. But after those three days, the traveling, they see the signs ahead uh, of of a a small town. See some smoke coming out of some chimneys. Um, it is uh, in this area, as I've discussed before, weather can change very, very differently. You could be summer, walk five feet, and you're in winter. And where they are now, within the last day, it's switched over to a late fall feeling. So it's got a bit of a cool breeze. There's no snow or anything like that. Um, but but again, it's, it's getting feeling like that late fall. The trees around here, most of the leaves have fallen at this point. A uh, bunch of them on the ground. So um, that's something that that's affecting them as well. So they can see some smoke and such coming out of chimneys. Um, the town itself probably has no more than 15 or 20 homes, what appear to be a couple small businesses and a, and a larger building in the center, which is where they're probably going to have to head to. If any type of if anything is an inn, it's that thing. So they make their way up to the town. Again, it's daytime when they approach, so luckily they're not trying to they're not trying to be sneaky, they're trying to be very open. Again, luckily having Artemis with her, uh, is, is helpful because, again, everybody wants a healing cleric in their town. Um, when a healing cleric passes through a town, it is quite common for them to stop and maybe spend a day or two healing what needs to be done. It's part of every young cleric at some point goes on a, a, a traveling quest like this. Well, for the next year, I'm going to travel around and just heal the, the, the poor and the weak and the whatever. So, somebody comes to town as a healing cleric, they are heavily happy. And while the group around them um, are look like stalwart warriors, except for Dandy, Dandy being the of Kender, most likely to be run out of a town. The fact that they're with Artemis gives them kind of a free pass. Um, and the fact that this group doesn't have Darsh with them helps as well, because Darsh is always the one people are the most nervous about, with the exception of maybe Dandy. Because Darsh is very big and dangerous, Dandy will take all their stuff. So, uh, things to be aware of. So they come into the small town, um, not important enough to have a name, <laughs> I probably had a name for it way back then, but I, I like to name every town, but I, I can't remember the, the names of some of these old ones since I don't have the papers for it anymore. Excuse me. So, um, they come into the town. There's a few people wandering about, and they wave at the cleric, and a couple of them come up and say, oh, yeah, how you doing? Thanks for coming into town. And you're very, very friendly to the group. And almost immediately, I've got this sore tooth, and oh, my shoulder's been bothering me as the weather's getting colder, and Artemis immediately just steps into doing what she can. That's, that's her natural instinct. It's why she's a cleric of healing. She she's she feels that desire and need to help those less fortunate or those that she has the power to heal. So she very quickly starts going in and taking care of those people, which, of course, draws attention of some of the more people in charge. And coming out of that big building is a gentleman who's clearly an innkeep. He's got a, the big apron on and such. and A very, very large dude. Um... In fact, enough that you see him, you can see he might even be like a half-ogre. He's, he's that big. Um, but he comes up, and he's friendly enough, and he's, he's like, Hi, this is my inn, but I'm kind of also look after, kind of head of the townspeople. Of course, milady, you're always welcome here, you and your family. If you'd like a meal, um, you're healing people. The meal's on me if you want to come into the inn. You need a place to stay for the night. We've got you taken care of. 
By the way, I should mention, I've got this really bad infection in my arm where I got cut on a nail, <laughs> you know. And of course, she's like, oh, let me take care of that. And he's like, excellent, yes, come on to the end. Now, I'll have somebody make you food while you look to my wounds. Um, and so they, people start following them into the end. And most of the town folks, you know, they're not, not getting a lot of visitors, clearly. Very quickly start coming to the end, and a little small crowd appears. A crowd, again, maybe 20, 30 people. Um, and most of them are just sitting there talking to the, the group, to Artemis, telling her what's wrong. Artemis is looking. And a lot of the things that's wrong with them, she's, she doesn't need to use magic for. You know, she's got a wide collection of herbs and salves and things that she's put together. Um, and she's always gathering that stuff as she travels. And so she's got different things. Here, put this in your tea, drink it for three days, you'll feel better. And, and to, the, to the average person in a small town, that's magic. You know, they don't understand that. Here's the healing cleric giving them a bag of magic leaves. I put that in my tea. I'll be healed after three days. She must have cast a spell on these leaves. And that's not the case. It's just classic herbalism. Um, but people view that as magic. If somebody else was doing it who wasn't a cleric, they might think it's witchcraft, and that's a whole other problem. Uh, but someone wearing the holy symbol of her, of her god it makes it okay. So, uh, while Artemis is doing that, Shadow and them are, are trying to chat. Everybody keeps an eye on Dandy, but they start asking some questions, and they're like, We've been traveling through here, and they talk about the wagon. We found a wagon a ways out. People had been killed. Anybody know them? And everyone here, no, we didn't know. Which direction were they going? And Shadow's like, well, they're coming towards this town. And like, no, we haven't had anybody come through in, in months. You know, people don't really come through here. We used to have travelers come all the time and, until the world got all messed up six, seven months ago. When that happened, you know, at this point, it's probably eight or nine months because they had their pity cross. So it's less than a year ago, though, since the world got messed up. You know, there's hardly anybody ever comes through these roads. Um, we're just kind of sticking out a living here best we can. Fortunately, we have there's farming and there's a there's a lake not far from here to the east uh, that has a lot of fish in it. So um, we have several people that spend a lot of time out on the water fishing. So we're making an okay life here, but we used to have a lot of travel guys. An innkeeper, I'm not making a whole lot other than, you know, selling and reselling food and such. The party's like, okay, have you seen anything odd? Has, so no one's come through. And they said, no, no one's come through. No one's really heard anything. Like, okay, well, a little disappointing. Do you have any horses? Do you have a wagon we could buy? Anything of that nature? And they're like, I'll be honest, no, we don't. You know, we used to have stuff like that. People would come through town, we would buy and sell things. But, you know, what few beasts we have, they're ours. You know, they're, they're here at this point. We really, none to sell. And the party's a little bummed out by that, but... Um, they do find out that there is a general store there. There's a there's a blacksmith who makes some basic weapon and armor. And so using a little bit of their funds, they realize they can get some some better gear for Michael. Um, because he's he's really just wearing leftovers and scraps at this point. Um, so they do they do make arrangements and get a basic set of clothing for him. They they even find a little bit of mixture of leather and chainmail. Um, and they get him a much better shield and a better sword. And a dagger that he keeps on his waist and belt and regular clothing, tunic, and some basic supplies, a backpack. So now he feels like he's kind of contributing there. Um, of course, swearing to pay back the party. You know, he's a knight. He's like, if you're giving me this, I understand that. I'm, I'm viewing this as a loan. A loan only. I will be paying you back for this in the future. It's going to happen. And they're like, okay, that's fine. And they, they, they decide to spend the night, hang out in, in, in that town. Um, and it's uneventful. They have a nice meal. The people are very friendly. People really enjoy them, especially Artemis. They spend the night. The next day, they leave. Much of the town would like them to stay a little bit longer. They haven't had visitors in a while. They're like, no, we really have to continue. Uh, we're looking for someone. 
you sure you haven't seen anybody come through? And they're like, no, we haven't had visitors in forever. They have no reason not to believe the, the villagers. Everybody's been very nice and friendly. So before they go out that morning to get ready to leap, Artemis spins her little necklace. And now it's pointing straight to the west. Um, and like considerably so, almost a little bit to the north, but straight west. And they're like, okay, well, either the drow have made a hard turn. Maybe they're coming back towards us. We're not sure. But if, if they are coming this way, we better get out of town because a lot of these people are not going to be able to protect themselves. We don't need them in the middle of this. So let's let's bumble out of here. So they get up next morning. They head out and start. They decide they're, they're not going to follow the road that continues to the northwest. And they're told eventually turns and goes straight north. They're going to go off into the, you know, the plains, if you will, with light forestation. Uh, but they're going to go directly west the same way that laser, their amulet is pointing them, uh, hopefully to try to catch up with the drow and his party. And they do their best to make a good time. They start pushing themselves harder, um, you know, sleeping less at night, moving more throughout the day, taking shorter breaks, trying to make up some time because they know that their quarry is on horseback. And that's really going to slow them down. So, or I mean, going to slow this group down from catching up with them. So as they travel over the next few days, the amulet starts pointing more northwest and more northwest. But it doesn't, you know, as before it felt like something was moving along with them, it's almost like whatever it is is now stationary and they're just, they're just moving straight towards it. And so they start speeding up. Maybe who they're chasing is, you know, maybe the drow has stopped for whatever reason. Maybe he's at where he was going to go. Maybe we can find out where this darkness is. Maybe they have more artifacts there. Maybe we can get a bunch back. Or worst case scenario, we get there and it's a whole army and at least we know where our enemies are and we can, you know, try to get the rest of our group, get some allies and rush in and take them. You do what they have to take. And they travel for about a week from the village. And the light doesn't change color. It doesn't get brighter and darker with the amulet. It just points. So you can't tell if it's five feet away or if it's 500 miles away. That's the downside of this thing. It does show them the direction. And as I've mentioned before, it doesn't always point directly in that direction. It points usually the best path to get there. Like when the uh, other group was down in the underground, it would point them to the best tunnels. It wasn't just a straight line at the rock. Sometimes it was. But, you know, most of the time it would lead them the direction they needed to go to get to where they needed to be. Um, so, again, they start thinking, well, maybe this light at this point is just showing us the best way to catch up with the drow. That would be awesome. Let's do that. So, like I said, they traveled for about a week. And... The, the, the vegetation starts getting denser and denser and becomes more and more of a forest. It's still very fall-like. Most of the trees don't have their leaves on them, although um, more and more evergreen trees, you know, the kind of pine trees with the needles and such, more and more of those start mixing in with the trees as they're, as they're going, and it becomes more of those. And the weather isn't changing, but it is getting a bit colder. Almost as if they were going uphill towards higher elevations. So if you've ever done that, you've ever gone up north where you've gone up really high, it gets colder the higher you get. But they're traveling on flat ground. They're not, they, there's no incline. In fact, sometimes they've been going down a little bit, but, <clears throat> excuse me, but it feels like that. In fact, at sometimes they even find themselves a little bit short of breath because at your higher elevations, sometimes it's a little bit, oxygen is not quite as high. And as they're traveling... So like I said, it's been about a week. They're about midday. They're coming through the woods. Dandy's ahead of everybody. She's, her and Shadow are taking turns kind of scouting ahead. Um, and she's kind of just 
bouncing through the trees. And she's had a very important quest. She's looking for danger, but she's also picking flowers because that's how dandy is. She found some pretty blue ones and she decides she's going to give one to Artemis so she can put it in her hair because it matches her blue robe and she thinks that's cute as hell. And as she sees, she sees a couple more, the base of a tree, she goes, oh, I'm going to grab those ones. Those are even bigger. And as she goes over there, she kind of comes through the trees and all of a sudden there's an opening and she sees just a clearing. And, and, she, and she sees in front of her a lake and on the other side of that lake, a massive building. This is not like anything she's ever seen before. And immediately, she stops and picks up a couple more flowers. And then, after she's got the prettiest ones, quickly races back to her allies to let them know of the, what she's found. The party makes their way forward. Danny explains what she sees. They get up there as quickly as they can, but now they're being a little more cautious. Building may mean... Creatures or people, not always good. So they have to be more cautious. So they get to where Dandy found the flowers, and they get to the clearing, and what they see is, I'm going to try to describe this the best I can. The trees wrap around the lake, and from the edge of the lake, which is almost perfectly round, is about 10 to 12 feet, just a slightly sloping upward hill to the trees. But the trees stop almost the exact same distance from that lake, going three-quarters of the way around. At the end of the lake, where it would be perfectly round, the top part is cut off. Now imagine if you're overlooking it's round, but then someone cut off the top bit of it, and now it's flat. And where that is, is sand. And the trees stop there, and beyond that is desert. Literally just sand. And the building in the center is a massive pyramid made of sandstone, just like you'd find in Egypt. A very large one, and there's other, what appears to be shapes and stuff, statues of some kind around it, but from where they are, because it's sand dunes, literally, on the other side of this lake, it's hard for them to make up what they are because they're considerably smaller. They don't see anything moving. Well, none of the party have ever seen a pyramid before. You have, I'm assuming. (laughs) So that's how I describe it. But they don't know what that is. They just know that's a big pyramid-looking building. And that they... Artemis, without without hesitation, pulls out her necklace and spins it. And sure enough, it points right at that thing. So now they're thinking, okay, are the drow in there? Did he go inside there? Or did they happen to get closer to a different artifact than the one the drow had? Which, of course, can be frustrating. Because they don't know what are we, we going to find there. Is this where the darkness evil thing lives? Or are we now in a whole different situation and our quarry is getting further and further away because now he's not the closest one and we may have lost the scent to him. And they're very frustrated. Sorry, I'm really thirsty today. So, they're like, okay. Now, Artemis... Um, has traveled through slightly desert areas before. Shadow says he has as well. Um, but Zarin, Michael, and Dandy have never, ever come across that type of an area. Of course, they're all much, much younger than the two elves. Both of the elves are several hundred years old at this point. And Michael and Dandy are both, I think, under... Like, I think Dandy's 18 and Michael's 17, if I remember correctly, at, the, at, the, at this point in the story. And Zarin is like his late 20s, early 30s. Um, but still... Way younger than the elves. Not as nowhere near as, as traveled. 
Um, Zarin, being as intelligent and Booker, he knows about deserts, of course, and knows a bit about what he... But again, this being a whole different world situation, who knows what they're going to find in there. So they decide that, well, we, we need to go that way. And it's at that time that Artemis, before anyone else, says, I smell smoke. Now, the party quickly melts back into the trees a little bit, where the smoke is fire. But they don't see any fire. So, it's determined that Shadow's going to go and see if he can find it. Artemis is like, there's no, there's no, it's blowy wind here, I can't tell it, but I, I, I smelled fire for just a moment. Shadow says, okay, cool, let me see what I can find. So he goes out, traveling around. And he makes his way around the lake. First, uh, he goes, I guess you'd say, to the right, if you will. They're, he's going counterclockwise. till he gets to the ends of the trees where the desert starts. He doesn't want to go out into the desert for fear that he'll be too open and someone will know they're there. He's sticking in the trees and he finds nothing. He comes back to the group, starts going the other way. As he's getting close to the end, to the, um, what would be the end of the forest on that end, he also begins to smell smoke as well. And he's very careful and quiet and he sneaks up and in a very small clearing in the trees, he sees a campfire with a figure next to it. He decides to investigate a little bit further because while Dandy's sneaky, the others are not and he doesn't need them giving this away without knowing he's going there. But he has his bow ready and he's moving very, very carefully as if he's, as if he's hunting. And he's slowly and quietly making his way through the trees. He sees that the figure is sitting with their back so as if they're facing the trees towards where the pyramid is. So he's trying to get around behind that person. And he sneaks. He doesn't hear any talking. He doesn't hear any sounds of anybody else. Just this one person sitting on fire. It's hard to make out the shape. It's not overly large, but it seems kind of like just bulky and round. Not round, I say, but, but bulky. It's not very like a curvy figure of, of a humanoid, but it's not overly large either. But again, it's now starting to get a little dark. The fire's giving more of a silhouette than anything else. And his improvision, it's not dark enough to kick in. So he's, he's a little bit more limited in what he can see. But he sneaks up and around. And as he's approaching the clearing, a loud scream no screaming sound goes off. He just hears it. He's startled. He jumps back. The figure jumps up and begins casting a spell. Shadow knows better than anything to get out of the way. And he literally dives behind a tree as a waft of flame comes flashing towards him. Luckily, he hits the ground. He feels the heat. A little singed, but nothing really, really bad. The rest of the group, they see a big poof of flame in the trees in the distance. and No hesitation. They go tearing off in that direction. Zarin, of course, being in the back, he's always slow and trying to hoof it, but he falls further and further behind. Um, Michael actually is the, the fastest. Dandy um, is very, very quick and nimble, but Michael, now that he's back in, in healing, he, he's very high stamina, and he's very agile as well. He's not quite as quiet and sneaky as Dandy is, um, but he's very, very, he's thin. He's not a huge, bulky knight like you'd expect. Um, so he's made to stay ahead of everybody, but not far, far ahead of Dandy. And Dandy always legs a little bit because she's also worried about Artemis. And they always worry about Artemis. Nobody likes leaving Artemis alone. They get up there as quickly as they can. And they can hear Shadow yelling. And only Artemis understands what he's saying because he's yelling in Elvish. And he's yelling, cast no more spells, I mean no harm. 
Artemis calls out to their friends to stop, because whatever's going on, they don't want to go running right into it. And they just kind of stand there. Now they're not in the trees. They're next to the lake. They can see the pyramid. They don't see anything living, but they feel a little exposed. They kind of gather up a little bit, and they listen to hear if they hear anything else with Shadow. Like, we're going to give it a minute. If we don't hear anything, we're going to race back in again, because maybe he's in trouble. We're going to give him a minute. They give it a minute. They're about ready to run in again, and they see Shadow come walking out of the trees with another figure. And it's an elven woman in wizard's robes. Her robes are gray. Now, in some worlds, the color of your robe can denote what type of mage you are. Um, if you're a, you know, maybe it'll say your alignment. Maybe it'll say your type of mage. Like, say if you're a battle mage, you wear black. If you're a mage of, um, I don't know, you create magic items. Of the ocean, you're an ocean mage. You wear blue. Things of that nature. Um, but she's wearing gray, and because the worlds are all mixed up, there's no real clear consistency on what a color means now. Clerics are still pretty standard. Artemis wears blue, almost the color of like water, like a blue, like a dark blue, and that's the color of healing. The healing waters, the healing tears of Tavian. That is a whole story behind why it's blue. Um, but healing waters is the whole presence. His holy symbol is what is basically it's like um, a drop of water with another drop of water. That's his symbol, um, and it's like a round amulet, but with that etched on. But that's his holy symbol. Um, and she's she's a mage, so you can't totally tell alignment, but they come out, and they don't seem to, like, be hating on each other. And they come up, and Shadow introduces her, and her name is Ulminia. Again, I didn't pick that name, but Ulminia is her name. And it doesn't sound like a very elvish name. It's not something that they're familiar with. But again, Merge World being what it is, who knows the rules on the world that she's from. Her name is Ulminia, and she apologizes for almost burning Shadow to death, but he had set off her trap. She's traveling alone. She'd cast a magical warding spell around her camp. In case when she's sleeping, something tries to get in. She's alone. She's got a spell defense. She, she can't be up all the time. Shadow triggered that spell. Her first reaction is, something's trying to get me. Because he hadn't made any noise or called out, which clearly he, he could have. Anybody seeing the fire could have done that. He was being sneaky, and he admits that. He goes, but we were, weren't sure of you either. They're well met. They sit there and talk. They say, let's... The fire pretty much gave our way where we are to anybody who might be watching anyways, but let's get off the edge of the lake, get back into the trees a little bit. Where I mean, now there's three elves there. They, they always prefer the woods anyways. So they go head off into the trees and head back to her little camp area. Um, but now they're also trying to keep a watch in case their little uh, spectacle has attracted any unwanted guests. Or any unwanted attention is probably the best word. Omenia says that she is a mage, and that, well, obviously, but she's a mage who specifically is a, um, she creates magical items. That's what she does. She belongs to a group of mages where they research, and they, of course, like any mage, they would want to be able to create artifacts. Artifacts are one of a kind, almost impossible to reproduce, extra powerful, extra special, um, but that usually starts with learning how to make magical items specifically. And at least in the way that I play D&D, mages very often are going to choose a specialization. And when I say specialization, I don't mean in the classic D&D sense of I'm a conjurer or I'm an illusionist or, you know, I'm an evoker. Yeah, that to me always seems like I feel that you, you choose that because of something you like to do. Not that you can't be an illusionist. Illusionists still exist totally. Um, and you can, just because you're 
focused on one thing. Just because I make magic items doesn't mean I don't want to know how to throw a fireball at somebody. If I'm going to go out and look for rares, magic stuff, I may need to be able to defend myself. You know, where a battle mage may be very combat-oriented doesn't mean he doesn't know how to cast a spell to make, you know, the ground slippery or to make a light show up. I mean, you never know what you're going to need. So mages are always looking to expand their knowledge. But for someone who creates magic items, they're always looking for not only ways to do that, but rare and special materials needed as part of that process. And she said that she'd been doing research. She's actually from a group of mages from the south. And one of the group had, through locating spells, had realized that had found this pyramid and that inside of it was something she was looking for. She's basically looking for these very, very special black pearls. They're the si- they're about inch and a half to two inches in diameter, and they're needed for a very special type of staff that her group is trying to make, and they need at least five of them, and they're very rare to find. They have three, they needed two more, but they're whatever they did, spell casting or conjuring, has let them know that there are at least several within this pyramid. So her and two others began traveling this way to gather them. She says that several days ago, in the middle of the night, they were set upon by some drow. And the drow did not... Almost by accident. The drow just came running. It was at nighttime. They came right through on horses. They didn't have a fire going at the time and almost stumbled right over them. A very brief but surprising battle kicked off um, and spells were cast. She, She's an elf. The other two that she was with were human mages. Um, she recognized the drow very quickly, cast what spells she could, um, but was not stupid either. She saw one of her allies get cut down. She basically cast a spell to shade herself. She didn't make herself invisible, but she made herself shaded. So she basically almost becomes like a shadow. And she kind of faded in. It was nighttime. Um, She ended up seeing her other ally then get cut down. Um, And the drow looked for her a little bit. But after, you know, short time not being able to find her, got on their horses and kept on going. She gave time in case one of them was watching. Nothing came back. She then went out there, checked her allies. There was nothing she could do. She gathered up what things she could of theirs. She didn't want to bury them because she's like, you know, they could show back up. And she had a choice to make. Does she go back home? Or she's only like a day or two away from this pyramid. She's closer to that. And she felt that she wanted to honor their sacrifice and for fear that the direction she was going was a little bit more the direction of the drow. She figured she's going to go ahead and continue towards this pyramid, see if she can get the thing she's looking for. Um, she said she arrived here just a couple of days ago, and she has been to the pyramid once, and she's found the entrance, but she can't figure out how to get it open. She said, but as soon as you walk into the sands, it gets very hot. The temperature changes immediately, as it would if you're in the middle of a desert in the summertime. Again, in merged worlds, where one world starts and one world ends, it is a solid line of that world's ecosystem, its ecology, its existence. So you can go from desert to snow in one step. So where it's fall and cool here by the water, as soon as you go in, it's super hot. So she goes there throughout the day, comes back to her camp at night. She doesn't want to be out in the open, and it's way too hot out there, and there's scorpions and things of that nature. Evil snakes, whatever. 
so. They say, okay. Party's like, all right, we understand that. And they ask questions about the drow. And very quickly, it's like, okay, these are our drow. These are the ones we're looking for. We, we want to chase after them. But Artemis, without Luminia knowing, spins her lamp, still pointing at the pyramid. They ask, have you seen the drow near the pyramid? Any signs? She goes, no, there's no signs that anyone's been around there in a while. So the party, looking at each other, all having the same kind of thought, this must be a different artifact. Somehow one of the artifacts is in this pyramid. Well, we want to go after the drow, we're right close to this. So taking a gamble, Artemis says, we also are seeking something from this pyramid. Although we don't know exactly what it is, we can tell you it's not your black pearl things. We're not looking for those. They're hoping they're not looking for those, but then they're going to take a gamble here and say, we're not looking for that. Since we're both seeking something within this pyramid, we both have the same goals here, we also are seeking out those drow. They're enemy of ours. They've killed people we care about. They've killed slaves. It's close enough. Tried to kill us. Zan's like, haha, did this to my face. So when this is done, we're going to go and whoop them um, and find them and beat them up a whole bunch. Uh, you're welcome to come along for that as well. And she's she's like, that's that's a very, very interesting offer. Definitely, I feel that partnering with you to get into the pyramid could be very helpful. And they're like, hey, who doesn't want another mage? And Zarin, of course, keeps talking to her because mages are all very sneaky. They don't want to give up their spells, but they definitely want to get spells. And sometimes they'll do a spell trade. Mages are always looking for more new magic. Zarin, of course, very interested in what her specialties are. I mean, she's magic item creation. Well, that's never been his calling. He knows about it. People in his family and his clan do that. Um, there's people from all sorts of specializations in the clan. They all sell out their services, but some may sell them out as the services to create magic items for somebody. So he knows quite a bit about that as well, and he's like, this could be good. If that's in there, maybe there's some other magic items or magic rare supplies that I can get hands on myself that might be of value. Dandy's just excited about the thought of going into this big pyramid-looking building. And she asks, you said you couldn't get in. Is, is, is the door too heavy? She goes, well, it's a big door, but there appears to be some type of strange mechanism on the front that is like a lock, but none of my spells are able to penetrate it. It's, you can touch it, doesn't hurt me, but I can't get it open. Dandy's like, ha 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 ha, because Kender and rogues in general, very good at picking locks. Now she's interested. Shadow and Artemis are like, well, we want what's in there. We need the thing. You need something in there that we don't care about. Um, it doesn't sound like you want them for evil purposes. Let's go ahead and group up as a group. And we will get in there. Get what we need. And at that point, you can either come with us or you can take your rewards back to your other people and tell them of your allies' deaths. It's whatever you think you need to do. She's like, I, I, I agree. I'll do this first part. Then after that, we'll see at that point. Because if we, I can get them, you know, like I said, this is the whole reason I'm here. I've been given this quest by my clan of mages to get these and get them home. And I need to honor the sacrifice of my friends by by succeeding. Doing it by myself was probably not going to happen, but you're a group of five, because remember, Michael's there now. You got an armored warrior here. You got an armored warrior for Shadow, even though he's a ranger. You've got a Kender, which makes everybody nervous. Um, but then you've got another mage, which she's always cool about. And, you know, you got a healing cleric. Who doesn't want one of those? So, yes, we will go into this pyramid together. So they decide to spend the night, rest, um, prepare to go in the next day, because wizards now have to Restudy their spells because a fireball got shot and they have to study every day. Artemis has to do her praying. Shadow Dandy and Michael are like, okay, we're going to let them rest. We're going to take the watches, just the three of us tonight. Um, 
That way they can get a little bit more. We'll do a full evening's rest. That way we're going to go in there. Who knows what's in there? There could be something living in there. We don't know. The evening goes through without a hitch. The next morning they wake up, put up the fire, get all the stuff done. Uh, said, hopefully, if all goes well, we'll be back in here tonight. But in case, let's put the fire out. No sense setting the, the forest on fire. And they make their way into the sands. And it's exactly like Omenia said. The second they step onto sand, it's just like waves of heat come washing over them. To the point that, you know, a couple of them step back out for a minute. And they're like, whoa, I was not expecting that. You know, you described it, but holy hells. They got themselves get back in there again. And it's just hot. And it's like, it's got wind as well. So there's sand blowing in your face. Nobody likes that. Fortunately, they don't have to go very far. It's not but a 15, 20-minute walk through the sands, which is struggling because it's sand. If you've ever been to the beach, it's not fun walking on sand. Um, but we're going to make our way into make, to the to what she says is the front. And the front is on the other side. So they have to go all the way around. Because they say she says there's no door on the three sides closest to the river or to the lake. It's all the way on the other side. As they make their way around, and they go a little bit wide around, because she says that there's some broken rocks and such that appear to be statues. And sure enough, they are. Uh, but when they get around, you see what would be your classic Egyptian-type st- statues there. Your Anubis kind of thing. Um, you'll see you know, like some small sphinx-looking things. There are no real sphinx. If you know anything about D&D, those are possible. But there is no sphinx hanging around outside of this thing. No living one, anyways, just the statue. And a lot of them are in, in ill repair, but there's two right at the front. They're almost like columns where they don't have feet. The bottom of it is just like an obelisk, and then the top of it is carved into um, Egyptians. And they get up there, and they're, they're painting, you know, they're looking at it, and Shadow and them are, are kind of looking at it. And Zarin and Ultimisha are talking about the, the door. They haven't gone up to it yet, but they're talking maybe different spells that may help. And Dandy wants to rush in and try to open the door, but their friends are kind of keeping him back. And Michael is keeping an eye on her. And when she tries to slide off, he's like, hey, let's wait on her. But he's kind of keeping a babysitting kind of thing on her. And they're looking at it, and, and Artemis is like, Shadow, when you look at their faces, what do you see? He sees, well, they're, they're a little worn with time, but these ones are you know, actually in pretty good condition. Um, very thin of thin of bones, and, and he he starts talking, describing, and he stops himself, and he said, "Those are elves. One of the ears on one side is is completely gone from wear, but the other side is definitely an elven ear. They go to the second one, and they look as well, and the other one, same way, the ear, ears are a little worn, but you can definitely tell that it's elven ears, elven brow, um, and and they're a little. Sorry, we've never heard of elves who built buildings like this." In the in in the sands, in deserts, at least not on our worlds, because again, Artemis and Shadow are from different worlds. Well, they know a lot of the same things. They each have brought new things to the table that were different on their own world, but neither of them have any experience with any kind of a Egyptian elves. And that's what these really look like. They look like Egyptian elves. Um, they may have the little beard thing on the bottom, which again, elves don't grow hair, so that's an odd looking thing. They've got the headdress that you'd expect of pharaohs and such. Um, even the Sphinx, the head on them, the statues, upon closer look, is an elven face. Um, and, of course, they, they call Amini over and they're like, these are elves. And she goes, I found that too, yes. It looks like this was built by some type of elves. And she goes, which would make sense if you look at how grand of a structure it is, these huge blocks. She goes, I've been just trying to figure out how they would have built this to begin with. It had to be magic. And who else's magic could do a feat of this nature other than elves? Well, Zarin is like, well, I don't know about that. I mean, you know, elves are powerful, but come on. You know, he's a little, little irritated by the, the talk. She's kind of that almighty elf thing. But Zarin's a little experienced with that. He knows that elves sometimes are egotistical. They don't mean it. 
Sometimes they do, and they just can't help it. So he's like, I'm going to let it slide because I'm hopefully going to get some spells off her and some loot from inside this pyramid. But he wasn't real happy with that statement. He considers his group, halflings, um, to be some of the better mages. They have a saying that's like, closer to the ground, closer to the magic. The magic comes from the world itself, so because they're shorter, they they're, it's quicker for the magic to get to them. And you know that's not true, but it's just kind of like a creed thing. So at this point, they go ahead and they approach the door to see what's, you know, so what's up, and they were completely correct. Omini was completely correct. The door is not per se like a lock. And the door is large. It is a big, large door. And the door appears to be made out of some type of wood. But when you tap it, it's almost like petrified. It's solid like rock. But it has the look of all type of wood. And it's two large doors. But the mechanism in the center is rounded. Okay? With other circles all hodgepodged around, and those circles can spin to be half circles. So imagine if you could, if you've ever seen one of those puzzle toys with the square grid where you have to keep moving the puzzle around to try to make the picture. If you know what I'm talking about, there's one open space on a grid of squares. Imagine something along that line with a bunch of circles where the whole thing will spin, and you can spin individual circles to make different things, and each circle has a different pattern. And it's a matter of figuring out how to get the right patterns. They... Assume if we can get the right patterns to the right thing, we're good. But much like someone picking up a Rubik's Cube for the first time, Omenia's like, man, I've been working on this for days. And it's not easy to turn these things. The, the, the small circles are this big around. The big ones like this. And it's they're built into the wood, but they seem like stone. So she goes, by the end of the day, I'm so sore from just spinning these things. I think I've got a few, but then when I think I finally got one good, I've got to mess up everything I did to try to get this one over here okay. Which, if you're, again, if you've done a Rubik's Cube, you know, you think you get one side done, you're going to have to almost destroy that to get the other sides up and going. It's very frustrating. So this was a puzzle that I put into the game for the PCs, and I actually drew it out on paper, and I designed it, and I had this, the circles that they could literally pick up and move around. Um, and it took two days uh, of their time. One day of trying it and studying it, and through all of it, Dandy's trying all sorts of combos, and Zarin's just kind of sitting there looking at it, and Ultimisha conferring with him once in a while and such. Artemis and Shadow try to help, but they're not. Michael's like, I, I couldn't even begin to tell you. This is well beyond me. So he, Michael and Shadow are kind of going around the pyramid, seeing if they can find anything, try to climb up the best they could. But these, each of these blocks is taller than any of them. It's not easy to get up there. So they try climbing up a couple of them, see if they can find another opening somewhere, but they can't. At the end of the night, they go back to their campsite. Next day, come out and try it again. They're about three-quarters of the way through the day, thinking, this is not going to work. And then Zarin calls out, I've got it. Everybody stops. And he's like, and he's like he'd been looking at it, and, and, and the, character, the gentleman who played Zarin actually was the one who figured this out. He, he had a bonus. I gave him uh, a, sec a secret bonus, if you will, because of his high intelligence. I gave him a clue to the pattern um, that nobody else got. And he wasn't able to share with anybody. It's something that he just happens to know because his, his intelligence worked better. I try to awar award high um, stats like that in the game um, by not just giving it away to everybody. I can give it to you. It's up to you whether you want to share it with the party or not. There's a lot of times that I will give people an envelope and say, when I tell you, open this up. Because maybe it's a story beat that's going to happen in the future. They open it up, now they have a specific thing on that paper. Maybe it's a decision, maybe it's something they see or they notice nobody else does. What they do with that information is completely up to them. I want them to, to, to decide whether they want to share it with everybody. Do you want to share it with just one person? What the case may be. Um, but I like doing that. 
Um, so a lot of times I'll have little scrolls tied up or whatever. And I, at the beginning of the day, I'm like, you get a scroll and you get a scroll. I'll tell you when to open them. Um, so it's fine. But he managed to figure it out and they get the pattern open. And sure enough, when they click the last one, there's a large clicking noise, almost like gears clicking into place. And then the door literally clicks and then swings open just a little bit. Party steps back, seeing if anything comes in. Um, Zarin casts a spell of detect magic to see if there's anything in it. Because they'd already detected the door. The door itself was not magical. They tried that. It was purely a gear system. Dandy's a little upset because it wasn't a traditional lock. And she was frustrated by it because she felt that as the locksmith, it should have been her that came up with that. Um, but she get, got caught up now. The door's open. She's so excited to see what's inside. She forgot all about that. Everybody waits and Shadow walks up first. Michael's kind of right behind him because if anything comes to the door, they want to be the first ones to kind of get it. And he reaches up and he puts his hand on the door and just pulls it a little bit and it swings super easily. Like the hinge is well-oiled and like the door is as light as a feather. It's perfectly balanced. He can move it either way he wants. Both doors are the same way. And he says, well, we can definitely get in. And the door opens, but the passageway behind it is really only a little bit taller than they are. So the door actually, the top half of the door was really just hitting against wall. It was inset. So it gave the illusion of a much larger passageway, but it is not. So they open that up and they start making their way in. Now, because they have Michael now, um, they have the issue of improvision. It's the same thing they had with Mercy before. He's a human. He has no improvision. The other party members do. Um, all three of the elves, including Ominia, she has Improvision. Dandy has a little bit of Improvision. And um, even Zarin, who has the weakest Improvision, has some Improvision. Um, but Michael has nothing. So they decide, you know, as he's one of the, the fighters of the group now, best armed, um, he needs to be able to see. So they go ahead and they light torches up. They got some stuff. They, they got out of the chest of holding. They've not told them any about the chest of holding. That's one thing they decided they wanted to just keep to themselves. They they don't want to give everything about their quest because they don't know if they get in here, they she they find something they want, she may try to lay claim on it as well. And while she's been a whole ally, and she's an ally, it's kind of like we're two two we're still two separate groups. Unlike Michael, who just jumped in as part of the group, she is an ally with a similar goal who's going to split in the end. So, you know, they're like, let's keep our secrets to ourselves as much as we can, but they don't tell about Zoltan or anything. They just say there's something inside, but they don't even know what it is. They just know they were sent here to get it as well. And when she asked, oh, really, who sent you? They just said, um, the temple. And they pointed at Artemis, and I was like, hey. And they're like, oh, well, that makes sense. If God's a healing you're sending here. If you think clear, there must be something of healing. Well, we'll see if we can find it for you. And they're like, good deal. So they go in, they've got torches. Shadow has a torch. Even though he has a sword, he's up front with Dandy. Dandy's in the very front, but she's not holding one. She's up front with her hoop pack, and she is checking for traps. Because this is a perfect situation where you'd expect there to be traps. In the very back of the group is Michael, also holding a torch. He decides he's going to. They decide they're going to close the door behind them to see if it locks. Because if it does, they're going to need to figure out how to get out right now. They close it, and it doesn't. It sits there, but you could just push it open again. So they feel okay. As long as nobody moves the circles outside, we should be fine. Very quickly realize there's no footprints in here. They don't see any footprints. It's just dusty, very dank smell. Not dank. Um, dry smell. Like there hasn't been a lot of moisture or anything. It's like you smell a tomb. You know, it's what you'd expect to smell in a pyramid. It smells like a pyramid. I'll just put it like that. <laughs> so 
Danny's checking for traps first. Shadow's right behind her with a weapon ready to defend. It's wide enough that they could go two by two, but they're really staying one behind each other. Zarin, Artemis, and Ominia are in, kind of in the middle there. So we got a warrior in the front and the back to defend in case something does come from behind. Rogue in the front searching for traps. This is the very most classic traditional order party order of, of a D&D story. And they make their way down. Sure enough, they're barely 10 feet in before Dandy calls a halt. I said, there's a trap right here. And Shadow's like, okay, well, what's going on? She goes, there's a pressure plate here. She was able to just, with her tapping of her hoop pack, that's one reason they've got the little metal tip on the end, is they listen for the ringing. Kind of like a, a blind person would use uh, for the sound to change sometimes when they're, when they're using the phone. I have a friend who told me that. And was listening, and very quickly, just it's with the lightest of taps, heard a different sound. She goes, that's not the same. Getting down, blowing across, she goes, there's a pressure plate here. And so she starts mapping it out, because she finds that there are several, and they're going to have to step in specific places. With the torchlight, they can see that this section of the floor is tiled, and the tiles are no larger than this. Um, if you're listening to the audio podcast, I guess I should be more specific. Um, no more than, say, six or seven inches by six or seven inches. Okay? So, one foot. And Denny's like, I, she goes, I can see very well concealed holes in the side. If we step on the wrong pressure plate, something's going to come shooting out of those holes. I don't know if it's an arrow, could be a dart, could be a spear. I don't know, but something's going to come out of there if we step on the wrong spot. So she starts mapping it across, and she starts going across herself. And they, they know it. And this is this is Dandy's thing. They understand that. It's dangerous, but they know Dandy's the best person. They don't want to mess with her. So they're all quietly, while she makes her way across, till she gets to a point, she says, okay, where I'm at now, the traps stop. It's just clear passageway. She makes her way back. She goes, now I need everybody to follow me. And each person needs to step exactly where I step. So she goes first. She goes first. Shadow's right behind her stepping. Next person is Omenia, stepping exactly where he's stepping. And so they're going in a pattern to get across. And there were some roles involved in the game to see if everybody was successful. Zarin had the hardest part because being short, as short as he was um, and his legs being a little bit stumpier, ha had to hop at a couple times, so he had to make some rolls. But everybody successfully made it across the trap, which was nice. Um, and they get to the other side, which was very cool. They continue on, and they get to the end, and now the tunnel stops and continues left or right. You have to choose a direction. There's nothing marking one side or the other. Although at this point, they see there are torches, old ones, up on the wall. And those little torch holders that you'd find, the little metal rings that stick out that you poke it down in. And so they start lighting the torches. Dandy checks it first. Torches aren't trapped. And they're like, okay, if we can light this up. At least we know if we come back to it, if this is like a maze in here, we end up in a place where a torch is lit. We know this is the place we've been to. Very smart. Um, something that is very common in when we play D&D, &D, any group that I'm in, um, Things that people always have with them is chalk, because you never know when you're going to have to mark a passageway of which direction you went. And another thing that is always has group is a hammer and spikes. Hammers and spikes, more often than not, are meant for climbing, but a very common and good use for them in D&D &D that, that we came across before is if you have a door and you don't want someone to come through that door, using the hammer and spiking that down to the base is one of the best locks you can have, because that door is now hitting an iron spike can also be used to keep a door open um, or to keep something from closing. It's, it's something that, the, in my groups, um, usually an NPC, when new players will show how that can be used at some point so they have that knowledge, but it's something that's uh, very cool to work into the story if you're, if you're playing the game. 
hammers and, and iron spike nails. Like we, we hold them almost like a, a railway spike. Keep in four or five of those with a, with a sturdy hammer in your backpack. We'll save your life so many times. You have no idea how handy that can be if you use it right. So they're traveling on and they get now to a room at the end of the tunnel. They, they decided to go left, I should say. They went left and they're traveling. And as they're going down to the end of this room, it stops and it comes into a, like a round alcove that has three doors. One on the left, one on the right, one right in front of them. And if you'll bear with me one quick second, I need to grab a drink. So I'm first. All right. I appreciate your patience. So, where were we? Yes, room with three doors. It's a rounded room. And there are different, of course, as you would expect, elvish hieroglyphics. Um, looking at them, uh, none of the elves can read them right off the top of the head. Like, this is not normal elven hieroglyphics. Or no, elven speech. It's, it's hieroglyphics. Um, and they can tell that it's very, very old. It's been here a very long time. Um, so it's decided that Zarin's like, well, you know what? Before we start messing with any of these doors, I'm going to cast a spell that he knows, Comprehend Languages, to try to read these to see if he can get a clue of what, maybe what else is in here. Maybe which door is the right door. Because they don't want to just go kicking open doors. Who knows? Clearly nothing lives here because there's none of the ground. is you know, thick and dust as they're walking through kicking it to the side. They're, they're not having you know any footprints or marks or anything that would imply something is alive in here. So they get in there and he starts casting his spell. And as he does, he starts reading these hieroglyphics and, and it's so old that and even with his spell, it's hard to decipher all of it. And everybody's just kind of watching and waiting, especially Ultimisha, who, you know, mages love seeing mages cast other spells, even if it's a spell they know. But this isn't one that she knew, surprisingly. And so he's casting that spell. She's studying him, because that's what he'd do if she was casting a spell. And he's learning a bit of the story. And what he picks up is that this was a race of ancient elven Egyptians, right? Egyptians. And that they ruled the lands and protected all of the different peoples. And it makes re references to the other races, to other races, but never specifies which ones. But they were protectors of the races. And that the races protected them in turn. And as such, the other races served them, but there was a dual layer of protection and such. And that a great fire came from the sky, and the other races began to die and came to the elves for help. The elves took in the greatest, or the, the, the ones that they could, to protect them inside their temple, which he is saying he believes what this is, where they would stay and they would protect them from the rain or the fire rain from the sky and then the other races would protect them until it was safe for them to come back out again. No ending to the story. But when he stops, he goes, it would imply that these were written after this event. So what happened to all the people? Maybe the event ended and they all left when the fire rain ended. Maybe we'd find more out there. It's hard to tell, but that's all he's able to make out of what little bits. There's other stuff on there as well that he could tell, and there's like statues of animals and one thing that looks like a dragon and things, but it, it, it's almost like there were different languages mixed together and the spell could only do so much. 
based on, you know, his level that he was at that time. But nothing cluing them in to which one of these doors is the right door. So Dandy checks them all for traps, says, I didn't find any, we're good to go, which doesn't always mean that there's no traps. It just means that Dandy didn't find any, so they're good to go. Nothing more dangerous than the rogue says, we're safe, and they're not safe. This situation, it seemed okay. They decide, let's go around. We'll start on the left, open the middle one, and start on the right. They go ahead, and they get to the op- to the left door. Now, the door itself doesn't have a doorknob. It does have one of those big rings in the center, like a big brass ring. Very good quality brass. Zarin, looking at that, says, you know, I could probably get a good penny for that brass. That's high quality brass. Could be melted down, used for something even, you know, brass jewelry and such. But it's very large and heavy, and you could probably put it in the chest of holding. But he's like, yeah, maybe on the way out, we'll stop and get some of these. That's that's some high quality brass. But they, when they take the, the thing, it lifts up, and the door pulls, but it's almost wedged. It takes several of them pulling on this ring. And the ring itself is the size of a large pizza. I'm a fat guy, so I'm going to use a lot of food references when we come to sizes, especially for those people who are listening to this on the audio podcast only. So imagine a good size hubcap or large pizza. It's a big ring like that. So two or three of them get their hands on it and pull, and they pull very, very hard, and it takes a while, but finally there's like a popping sound, like a kind of thing, and the door comes loose. And once it does, it's easier to pull, but the smell that comes out just smells like old you know, and they can almost feel a bit of a pressure like the air is going in because the room didn't have any air in it. You know, not for a long time and just that mixing of temperatures and such. There was some torches in here and they've lit them around in the circle. So they, they pull open the door and they look inside and it's relatively dark. And Dandy goes first and is about to step in and she's like, Hey guys, I'm not sure you want to come in here. Shadow steps up behind her and looking inside, he sees several sarcophagi. Now, I kind of assumed you all figured that was coming. The room itself is not overly large, but it's also round, much like the chamber was outside, but no additional doors. There are five sarcophagi standing up around the room, with another one in the center facing the door. Six total. They themselves are large. They appear to be gold and jeweled. And in the shape of like the elven, Egyptian elves carved into them. But of course they're bigger around. So it's more around that. Just like you'd picture a fancy one. They can see from the torchlight shining off the gems and such. And everybody's like, these are wealth. There's gold and silver. I think I see platinum inlaid in some of those. They're all different. But the one in the center, of course, is the most heavily jeweled. Most heavily adorned in, in, in fancy metals. And part of it's made of stone and such as well, but each one's inlaid with rubies in the eyes or jades in the eyes. The jewelry in here is a small fortune. And they're like, that's impressive. Even even Artemis, and who could care less about wealth, is like, that's a lot of wealth. Everybody's minds. Darren's like, I could I could buy a kingdom with this. Dandy's like, oh look at all the pretty shiny rocks. You know? You know, gets to nobody knows Almania's thinking, but you get even Artemis is like, oh, how many people could I help with this? How, I could donate this to the temple. They all start thinking, this is the kind of wealth we might want to stop for a few minutes and see if we can take some of it with us. But at the same time, many of them are also thinking, but that could be grave robbing. And as good people, that's not always honorable either. Zarin could care less about that. Dandy doesn't think about these things, but Michael and Artemis specifically. You could tell they, they've, they've kind of got that same thought. They're like, there's a lot of wealth here. It could be used for good, but wow. Um, 
that's also taking from the dead. Could be dishonoring the dead. So let's... They, they start to talk about it. They say, before we mess with anything, let's just see if any of the things we're looking for are here. It's like, okay, cool. We know where this is. We can always come back to it. And who knows? We can only carry so much. And some of these other rooms may have even better treasure. So before we waste all of our time picking this stuff, let's look around. We can always come back later. Shadow Michael, like, we understand. Okay, we'll do that. Let's wait and see what, what we run into. Because, you know. So, like, do we try to open the sarcophagi? And they decide they don't want to. Because inside of there, probably mummies or, or bodies. They figure it's corpses. They don't really know what mummies are. But their thought is, hey, inside of those could be you know, bodies that are decayed. Probably just skeleton and dust at this point. This is a very has not been opened in a very long time. But there still may be stuff in the room we need. Because there are things other than that. There's small things that look like a pile of coins here and there. An old burnt-out candle over there. Maybe an old sacrificial dagger-looking thing. You know, the classic crisp blade. Things you'd expect to find in a tomb. There's things that were probably vegetables and cloth at some point. But the second they opened the door, a lot of those things into dust. Because that's really what would happen. A lot of people don't know that. And when they play D&D, &D, they don't have that little bit of realism. You open a tomb that has been opened in a thousand years, anything that is cloth-based is literally just going to fall apart. It's just going to destroy. So they see things that were probably that, which is scraps and pieces and dust of what that was. They can't make out all of it. But they start searching the room for the things that Omini is looking for, which is those black balls. And they're looking for anything magical artifact. And at this point... They're like, okay, we're going to have to use the amulet in here. So she's going to have to see it. They hadn't let her see it before, and they say, hey, listen, we don't know what we're looking for, but this little thing here will tell us. We're going to check it. And they pop the little spinny thing, and it points back out the door. So I'm like, okay, what we're looking for is not in here. And she's like, wow, that's, that's a really cool little magic item. I'd love to learn how you made that or where you got that. I'm from people that like that. That's really cool. My people look for magic items. You pull out something magical, she's going to be interested. Excuse me. Very thirsty. So, they look around the room. They don't find anything. They find some more value. Some just loose gems. Like, oh, we could just scoop these up. Um, but we're not going to. We're going to leave it here for now. Just going to kind of keep an eye on things. And we'll go check the other rooms. They leave that room. And they decide to go into the next one. The one in the middle. They'll just go around the room. And they've tried their darndest to pull on that door. But this one seems way more stuck. And as hard as they pull, they cannot get this door to open. They're like, well, we could spend a lot of time wedging out. Let's go on to the third door. Because they spin their little necklace and it points back the direction they came from. So what they're looking for is not in one of these three rooms. But Omenia's little black orbs maybe. So we need to find them. So like, let's go ahead and open these doors. So they, they say, let's go to the third door, see if we can open that. They pull the third door open. And like the first door, it was hard, but it finally pops open. They go inside, and it is very, very much like that first room. So I've got around the edge, one in the center. All of them different, and different from the ones that were in that other room. All of them heavily adorned with jewels or inlaying metals. When I say the metals, they're literally carved and laying into the sarcophagi. If they want that, they'd literally be chipping away at it. Um, some of the gems that are in the same way. If they want to get, some of these gems are large. Like you imagine, a, imagine a, a jawbreaker-sized ruby or emerald. I mean, that's. You can buy a town for that, you know, in, in this type of a setting. So like, these are really expensive, wealthy things here. And like Again, they search the room. They find the same kind of stuff laying around there that they did before. An old gold bowl that probably had oils in it at some point. And here's an old, um, you know, vase that probably had flowers in it, but they're all gone now, so it's just a vase. 
a ceramic vase, you know, things of that nature. There's no hieroglyphics in the room. That's one thing they notice. Plenty on the room outside of here, some on the doors, but nothing in the room at all. Um, so like, okay, well, let's go see if we can get that other door open again. And when they go to the other door and they go to pull on it, it pops open super easy. And they're like, well, that's odd. And Zarin, you know, guesses, well, maybe somehow that opening the other two released pressure that was kind of doing that. Now that there's more airflow, maybe there's some hole in there we're not seeing in the, the top or something that allows this one to open. We're like, okay, well, that's cool. We'll give that a shot. And they pull harder. And when they do, they hear a click. And they hear a thunk noise, like something heavy dropping. And then they hear grinding stone coming from both the first room and the third room that they were in a moment ago. And looking behind this door, they see that the door is behind it is solid stone, but the handle itself was attached to a chain going through a hole. When they pulled it, they unlocked it. And after a moment, the grinding stops. But then they hear the sounds of shuffling feet. I need another sip of my drink. This is a very good drink. Orange mango, one of my favorites. Okay. Very quickly, they retreat down the tunnel a little bit. Something's came in there. Did they open up a hidden door and something caretaker has come out? As they back up, at that time, through the first and third door that they'd opened, where the, technically the second one they opened, but the third door, the one on the left and the right, the doors come open and the dead begin to walk out. I'm pretty sure we all saw that coming. Because that's what you're going to find in an elven Egyptian pyramid. Probably some elven Egyptian dead. But the things that come out don't appear elven. In fact, they appear relatively well kept. They're obviously somewhat mummified. They have the scraps of cloths around them that you'd expect. But the mummies themselves still have armor and such on them. And they're of different sizes. And looking at them, even though they're slightly shrunken and moving kind of jerkily, they appear to be of different races. One of them, one of the first ones out, appears to be more of a dwarven shape. And then some more are coming out, and they appear to be more human size. None of them really appear elven in shape at all. And Zarin realizes at that point, okay, we brought in with us those who could protect us until it was safe for us to go out again. They served us. The bits of the story put together, he's starting to put those in different different orders. And it was really good. The character, the gentleman who played this character was very, very good at this. He put it together and he's like, he's like, these elves were evil. These elves were evil. The bad thing happened. They brought in the races they thought could protect them. They turned them into undead servants to protect them until they could come out again. However long that was. These aren't their servants. They're, they're slaves. And they're dead, and now they're going to kill us. He's yelling that out as the dead are moving towards them. And these dead are not moving fast. They're very zombie-like in their in the way that they're moving. Um, but they're very moving with purpose. It's They know clearly that these group are here. And while they're slowly going back up the tunnel, slowly, you know, they're making their way back with Michael at the back, trying to make sure nothing's coming behind them, because who knows what they unleashed over there. They're... They're like, well, what are we going to do? Do we fight them or do we leave? If we leave, we have to try to get across that tile thing and we're not getting any of the stuff we need. 
if we were here in the tunnel, like I mentioned, it was about two people side by side. We put Shadow up front, put some ranged behind them. Shadow and Michael could kind of take turns stepping in. We might be able to hold them off that way. Especially with Dandy as ranged. Artemis uses a sling, um, so she can she she has that for going for. Um, Zarin has his spells, of course, and as does Laminia. Uh, but one of their best bonuses at this point is, of course, Artemis, because clerics of good... Um, Actually, clerics of almost every alignment at some point have the ability to turn undead. Turning undead, if you're not familiar with it, can mean a couple of different things. Basically, you're calling upon your god, his holy wrath, to shake this evil away. If you are an evil cleric, you might be trying to take control of them. Or, if they're still trying to kill you, you might want to push them away. But turning undead can mean different things. Depending on how strong of a cleric you are, in D&D terms, how high of a level you are, versus how strong of the type of undead you're fighting, a.k.a. their level, very weak ones sometimes could just explode or fall over completely permadead. Some, if they're more powerful, may turn around and just try to go away from you. Doesn't mean they're not going to stop trying to attack the other people in your group, but they're going to try to get away from you. And then, of course, the even more powerful ones won't be affected. Especially you get all the way up to things like vampires and liches. You've got to be a pretty high-level cleric to have any effect on something like that. Artemis is not that high of a cleric. And when she tries... Casting her, her, she uses, you know, calling upon her god to destroy or send these things away. They just shuffle through like she wasn't even there. So whatever they are, whoever created them, more powerful than Artemis. So at this point, they got to cast some spells and they got to do some things. So they're trying to fight. They get into their regular combo. At this point, Shadow's up front. Dandy is next to him. Because she's the smallest, she can, she's agile, she can kind of get in between what he's doing, but nobody wants to get in the middle of him swinging his sword around. And again, he dual wields. So he's got two swords, they're walking into like a blender. The problem he's having is when he's hitting them, they're very hard. It's not cutting into them as deeply as his sword normally would. While they're wearing some armor and stuff, the armor's so old, it's just peeling and falling off. But when it hits that cloth underneath, it's like the cloth is a super, super hard leather. Sometimes it just dents. Sometimes it cuts a little bit. A little dusty smoke will come puffing out of it. But no blood or anything of that nature. You can't see anything underneath of it. It's just, he's just more slowing them down. He cuts an arm off one. The thing keeps coming. None of these guys have had a lot of experience fighting undead. But Zarin is like, we got to take care of them. We got to, we got to, we got to kill them, because I cannot make it through that trap thing, and I don't know what's down the other tunnel. There could be more coming. So Zarin's like, I can cast a spell if you can try to get them all together. They're like, okay, we can try it. So, so Shadow's trying to, you know, not force them back, but trying to keep them all so they're bunched in. He's not backing up as much to try to get them pushing into each other. And when Zarin says, when I, you know. When I yell, you know, when I when I start chanting, I'll be back here. And he brings everybody back with him except for basically Shadow and Dandy. When you hear me start chanting, you need to run. And they're like, okay. He starts casting his spell. The spell, contrary to popular belief, spells don't take minutes and minutes and minutes and long. Some do, but most of them don't. It can be very, very quick. It could be literally but a sentence. I could say, I am now going to cast a lightning bolt and it will hit you in the face. That could be, that, you know, obviously I'd be using magical chant, but that could be all that it is. Zarin casts his spell, and he's halfway through, and Omelia's eyes open, and she goes, Not inside! But it's too late to stop the fireball that shoots out of Zarin's hand. Fireball flies into the undead, into that 
closed chamber, that room at the end, and there's blowback. And a fire comes back, but it's it's a it's a big fireball. This actually happened in the in the story. This is what Zarin did, decided to cast fireball inside of a tunnel with a dead end at the other end, all intents and purposes. And it blew up. And it came back and it it literally it burns most of the undead. And when they when when the ashes are falling and the party gathers themselves and they took some damage from that. They had to they caught on fire. In fact, if I remember Artemis's robes caught on quite a bit of fire, and she had to heal herself because she took some fire damage there. And Danny took some damage just from the fire hitting her in the back. She was running away. Shadow was a little bit better than that. He got he was a little bit faster. But it it caused serious damage. And the party's just pissed at him. I'm like, why would you do that in here? He's like, he's like, that or we die. What did you want? What did you want me to do? I was able to cast one spell and take out everything that was coming. And clearly, they're waiting. They keep watching. Nothing else is coming. He goes, they're now just ash on the ground. They're not just ash. There's chunks still burning and wiggling and stuff. But no actual zombie things coming. He goes, what, do you want to run back there and let the traps kill us? Or run into the dead end and hope we don't end up into it, or the other tunnel and hope we don't end up a dead end and then just die? I took them all at one shot. Yeah, I took a gamble. But we're all alive. Stop your complaining. Party's still very irritated with him, and he got very smug as well. They go through there, and they're stabbing at the undead things, and Shadow and Michael are doing their best to make sure that everything's, you know, nothing's going to get back up again. And Dandy makes her way down the tunnel and comes back, and she goes, it's gone. Shadow's like, what do you mean it's gone? The, everything. The doors blew off, and the roof collapsed on those rooms. There's no getting into those rooms. That treasure's buried under tons of rock. Zarin, now everybody just looks at Zarin, and Zarin's like, Fuck! And just turns off and stomps back a little bit and kind of lunks against the wall. Zarin wanted that wealth more than anybody else. And now he's a little mad at himself for what he did. And in the game, to be honest, he actually destroyed two or three pretty cool magic items I had in there for them as well. Um, that's one reason for the major blowback. In Dungeons & Dragons, if you destroy a magical item, depending on how powerful that item is, there's going to be a release of that magical force. It's not always like that, but this is how I play. If you destroy a magical item, there's going to be the magic released that was put into that to create it. Um, and depending on what it is, that's part of why in the very, very beginning, now that Fire Moon was trying to use the magic of all those godlike artifacts. If he could break them and harness the magic that created something even the gods couldn't destroy, he was going to use that power to become a god. Same basic concept. Omenius not letting it go. She's chewing out Zarin and they get into a bit of an argument because you're talking about practices of magic and how best to use your spells and so on. And it's not pretty. But the loot is lost and they continue on. Now the party decides to continue on. There's still things they need to do. They're trying to get this stuff. And they travel throughout this thing and they have several more minor encounters. At one point they come across a larger mummy that literally was almost the size of Darsh but with no minotaur features. Very large. And it was super strong. Um, and it really got a good punch on Michael and dislocated his shoulder. They had to do some healing on him because it had very, very strong strength. But they managed to kill it. Um, there was a couple points where they came across um, what were... They ap appeared to be mages. Now, these were not liches. They did not have spells. But they themselves were enchanted. And when they were trying to fight them... Any spells fired at them reflected back. And so the first couple spells cast actually hurt the party more than it hurt the enemies. So they had to pretty much do all melee stuff and not use anything magic. Any magic weapons and such. Because in the party by this point they had picked up a couple 
random magical items. I haven't gone into much detail because there isn't anything they've picked up that drastically affects the course of the of the story at this point. Um, but eventually there will be times when I will say they find a specific item and it becomes important to the story. I will get into more detail. I haven't talked much about loot. You've probably realized that because anything they've picked up at this point has just been minor treasure or minor magical items like a sword plus one or a dagger plus two. That maybe helped me a little bit in dagger, but in, in combat, but doesn't really have a huge effect on the story. That will change as we move forward. Some of the stuff they find becomes incredibly important. But this stuff they have now, they do have some magic stuff. They realize when fighting the mage things, even the magic weapons didn't do any damage, so they had to go back to regular weapons, common stuff like that. Through it all, they learn that Almenia does not have very many useful spells. Not for combat. That's not what she's trained for. She's trained to build magic. She has a couple. She's got some magic missiles. She's got a burning hand. She does a couple of those little things. But she ends up not casting a lot of spells. She just can't. She doesn't have that type of thing to help them. Um, several times she says she, she casts detect magic, things like that. Is this thing, is this magic uh, traps and things like that? She can be helpful there, but not a lot in the way of combat. And in all the rooms that they search and they look through, they don't find any of the little black orbs they're looking for. And every time the amulet's taking them further and further in. And again, they're like amazed. Times they've gone up, they've gone down. It was actually uh, two, or, two or three weeks of playtime to get through this maze with all the encounters and the different puzzles and traps that were inside. Um, but again, I don't have the specifics a lot of those because they were lost when my basement flooded. So I don't have those. So we're kind of have to skim over some of that. But all be told, they finally get to a room. They get to a big door. Let me find another room. A door. They get to a big door. And this door is decorated much like the very front door was. It's made out of that wood type thing again. It's the first door they've seen since the very entrance that's made out of that same type of thing. And it doesn't have any type of locks on it at this time. In fact, it's completely unlocked. But the thing that stops them in their tracks is they can see light flickering through the cracks around the door. The light you'd expect from fire, of course. So, they're like, okay, there's no way fire has been sitting in here for the last... At this point, I think they determined it was close to a thousand years since anybody had been in here through, through what they did and other hieroglyphics they found. And they did find that it was a group of evil Egyptian elves that enslaved everyone around them, and they would turn them into their protectors and defenders by turning them into mummies and things of that nature. Um, so, I, I, I very much based a lot of that on the, the what do you call it? Um, oh, what were they? Uh, it'll come back to me. But yeah, I based it on uh, 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 a race that I found in, the, in, a, in an extension to the, to the Monster's Manual. Uh, but that wasn't elves, but I turned it into elves. Um, so they get to this room like, okay, there's fire in there. Fire's not been kicking around for a thousand years. There's been no other room or hallway we found that has shown anybody alive in it. Everything we found has been dead. So this could be a concern. But they say, we've got to go. The amulet's pointing right in there, and that's the direction we have to go. There's, there's no other passageways at this point. Everything has led to this. And they open up the doors. Try to go carefully, but as soon as they start, they just swing open lightly like those first doors. And inside is a large room. Probably about 10 foot, 12 foot ceilings. So it's the biggest room they've seen the whole time. There are obelisks on four corners of a long rectangular pool of liquid. On the top of those obelisks are braziers with flames coming out of them. And there are different torches around the room that are lit up as well, hanging on, hanging on the walls. Um, there are no sarcophagi, 
but there are statues of the different types of races dressed in the elven Egyptian style. So there's dwarves and elves, males and females. There's no minotaurs, but it's dwarves, elves, humans, halflings. Um, there were orcs were there, goblins were there, and ogres were there. So there were several of what you consider the darker races that were also in there in that same type of Egyptian garb. And these ones um, are, you know, clearly one piece of stone, but they have like a stone spear, a shield and a sword. These were ones that were clearly important. And the concept in the story was that this is what kept everybody kind of complacent is because if they were good enough and they did a great enough job, then they too would get to become one of the uh, eternal protectors in this room. They were led to believe that these statues were really the ancestors of great heroes. And it was a all perpetuated lie that the evil elves used to, to keep their different races enslaved and ignorant of what was really going on because they were also cannibals and they also ate the other races. That was another thing they came across in this story as well. So most of these things they're fighting, all their innards had already been taken out and feasted upon. So very, very not nice elves. Very not nice elves. So they get into this room and immediately they start looking for traps, anything. They don't see anything, but on the other end of the room, there is a door. And it's like the door they just came in, but much smaller. And they start making their way around the pool. And they're like, okay, we're all stuck together on one side. And looking in the pool, the torchlight's reflecting on something. There's a lot of white stones of different shapes and stuff, all buried, or not buried, but all laying in the bottom of the pool. It looks like it's about a foot and a half to two foot deep. And there's all, it's just reflecting on all these weird white rocks all over it. Um, and the room, even though it has water, the water didn't disappear. You'd think that over time it would evaporate, but it does not. Um, it's very stagnant in there, but there's no mold, nothing, no growth of any kind. Um, the room just has that dry smell. So they're making their way across. And suddenly, yeah, because something important has to happen here, right? Michael pushes Dandy really, really hard. And caught off guard, but incredibly, she manages to roll back to her feet. Shadow quickly draws his sword and spins around, turning on Michael, who has his sword out, and is turned towards Artemis. Shadow's first instinct is, I don't know why, but I gotta say, he jumps in between Michael and Artemis. But Michael drops his sword and just hurls himself at Shadow. Shadow does his best to kind of knock him out of the way, but both men fall down, and Artemis behind him falls down as well. Right as they do, something goes swinging through the air right where they were standing. Michael, unable to speak, tries to say something, no sound comes out. He goes to call out to his allies when he sees a reflection of something in the water behind him, heading towards Dandy. He pushes her out of the way in time, but then something starts swinging towards Artemis, and he does the same thing. He rushes over, unable to make a noise. Shadow, seeing all this, thinking he's attacking, tries to get in between. They all get knocked down. And it's at this time that Shadow realizes none of that were there any sound at all. Everybody pops up and they see Altimetius or Almira down at, down at the other end of the room 
and she has her hands up and coming out of the water appear to be like tentacles made of those white rocks. And she's smiling and she just looks all evil and stuff because, you know, that's she, she's all evil and stuff. But she's not saying anything. But they see that she has rings on her fingers. And she's using... The, and as she's moving her fingers, these things are coming out of the ground. And they can tell that these tentacles are made of bone. Many, many different types of bone. Zarin quickly realizes what happens. She cast a spell. Which is a silent spell. She removed sound. A, they wouldn't hear her monster thing coming. And B, completely eliminates the spellcasters from being a threat. Zarin cannot cast a spell. Artemis cannot cast a spell. More or less. Artemis, some of hers don't require to talk, but most of them do. This is going to greatly remove the spellcasters. Now, that means that Amira herself, she can't cast any spells. She doesn't need to. She's got other things. So these bone tentacles come out and start attacking the party. Well, they're doing their best to fight them. But for everyone, they break and ship. Bones just come rolling up the tentacles like they're rolling down a hill and fill in the slots. It may not even be the same type of bone, but it's all jagged. The bones themselves are chipped and broken and they're sharp. And when they hit the characters, it, it rips through skin. It causes damage. Almira just... You could tell that she's laughing with glee even though there's no sound. So, Zarin, at this point, doesn't have a lot he can do. He's got his dagger, and if he's got sling, and he's using sling stones, but the sling stones just bounce off the bones. They're not very useful. Artemis is kind of in the same situation. She has her staff, and Zarin has a quarter staff as well. And they're smacking with that because the slings weren't doing anything. But they're not very strong. Michael and Shadow are having pretty good luck defending, but they're more defending than attacking. They're just literally blocking and trying to save Artemis and Zarin and anybody else from getting hit. Dandy isn't really trying to attack. She's almost like she's dancing. She's dancing in between them. They, The tentacle things can't hit her. But she's not trying to attack it either. And she starts running away from the rest of the group, away from them, and then starts going around the pool to the other side. Now, her allies don't quite know why, but half of the tentacle things start going after Dandy. It's a little bit easier on the rest of the group now, because now there's only half of them. And to record, there were ten, because she has a ring on every finger, and each finger is controlling one of these tentacle things. And literally, she's very ambidextrous. Like, literally, a ring turning is attacking a specific thing. It's like she's doing ten things at once. So she's very concentrating on what she's working on. So now she's got five over here trying to catch Dandy, because Dandy's just dancing in between them. And the other five are trying to attack them. Well, they're making a little bit more headway now. They don't have as many on them, so they're actually able to start doing some damage against it. And Amira, who at first was very excited by this, starts to get a little bit concerned, and she's trying to get harder and harder. Zarin, on the other hand, decides he's not going to try to attack. He just starts trying to keep out of the way, keep the tentacles moving. And he's waving at his friends, and he's trying to give them the hint, don't do that either, you know, and they just, just stay moving. And they do that. They don't understand why. But Amira's trying to go faster and faster because Zarin knows that that silence spell has a time limit. And he's trying to wait it out. Now they take some damage. And Artemis actually gets hit really, really hard and goes down unconscious. Once she's down, Tentacle ignores her and starts going after the others again. 
the rest of the party, while trying to defend her body just in case they come back, still trying to stay fluid, eventually the silent spell finally does stop. And Zarin had been singing the whole time. It looked like he was trying to cast a spell. His allies thought he was, but he was just singing a song. And the second he hears a note from his own singing, he immediately stops and starts casting a spell. He doesn't do fireball. <laughs> he realizes this is not the place for a fireball. But um, he did have, uh, I want to say, he had a lightning bolt spell, but he decided not to use it because it was too dangerous inside. Um, if I'm correct, he used a Mel's Acid Arrow spell because um, it was a direct shot like that. He was going to do magic missiles, but he'd used most of them earlier, and all he had left was one Acid Arrow spell for combat. So he shoots that. Um, Amira has a choice. She can either do something to get out of the way, because she hears him casting. And again, as we talked earlier, it doesn't take long to cast a spell. She tries to trick all the tentacles at him. But it's not quick enough, and he gets off his spell. Now, the tentacles hit him hard. And he actually, one goes through his shoulder, another one stabs him in the side really deep, and the other ones are just like clawing him. He takes a bunch of damage, and it, it knocks him out from that. But the arrow, he rolled a really good hit and, and hits her real in the, in the upper shoulder. Now, an Mel's Acid Arrow is a Dungeon Dragon spell that shoots an arrow covered in acid. Not only does it hurt you, it then gets acid in there, and it keeps burning and burning, and it is not easy to get out. It is not easy to cast a spell while you have an arrow covered in acid eating away at your shoulder. She immediately stops and starts trying to pull at it, because it hurts. It's, you know, instinct to do that. But while she's doing that, she has to let go of the magic she was doing with the rings, and the tentacles just collapse. Without hesitation, Shadow just quickly runs over, grabs his bow, and just starts shooting arrows. She sees this in time, but doesn't manage to cast a spell before literally two or three arrows literally plug right into her, and she falls to her knees. By that point, Michael, who'd just been running clean up, is right in front of her, and as she puts up her hands to cast a spell, he just literally clean cuts her through the head. Beheads her straight off. Head rolls, her body falls. The tentacle, the bones literally that hit the ground, just turned to dust at that point. The party is hurt and injured, but nobody's dead. Zarin has had the hell beat out of him in the last couple incidents, and, and he's, he's aware of that. But he also was the one who completely saved their lives in this time, because the characters literally were trying to defeat it. And it was him that, because he has the silent spell, Zarin did, and he knew that it only lasts a certain period of time based on your level, or how, how long, as a, as a mage, he knows this. if you can make it through the end and he gets sound back, they're going to be in better shape. And the singing thing was his idea as well, which I really thought the character that did, or the guy who's playing that character says, I'm going to sing and let me know when I hear a note. And I was like, fine. And sure enough, that was, I'm like, you hear a note. He goes, I cast Acid Arrow. So it was the only spell he had left. I'm like, there you go. And one initiative and so on and so forth. Amira is now dead. The party, eventually, Artemis wakes up. She uses her healing on everybody. Um, Zarin's up as best he could be. She'd already used some healing. Um, his wounds are not bleeding anymore, but he's still in pretty rough shape. Um, but during this time, Dandy's searching room for traps, making sure there's nothing else in here. Doesn't find anything, except what she does find is a scimitar of incredibly good quality. And 
she recognized it very easily to be one of the artifact weapons. And it's literally just sitting inside a ceramic vase, like it was just tucked in between a bunch of flowers. Shadow, with Zeron's help when he's up, decide to go and search Almira's body, because she's a mage. He wants what's going on. When they get up there, the rings aren't on her fingers anymore, which irritates Zarin. But he does find a couple other magic items on her, small things. Finds a ring of wizardry. If you don't know what that is, it let it, one, this one they found let him cast twice as many first-level spells, uh, which for him, that, that was a world of difference, uh, because at the time he could cast, I think, three first-level spells, so three or four. So being able to cast six or eight, doubling the amount of magic missiles made him a lot more capable in combat. Uh, but that was the cool thing. But what they also find is a scroll. And in the scroll, written in Elvish, warns Almira that they will be coming through that area soon. And they'll probably be seeking the same artifact. Use them to get it. And return to us. And they realize that she's either, that either is from the drow. Because it definitely looks like it's from the drought. But in either case, she's probably serving this darkness either, as well. Same villain, same bad time, same bad channel. So she was using them to get inside. They don't find any black stones. Fully a lie. Nothing like that in there. She was looking for the same thing that they were. This was the last room. She knew that. She used this against her. She had some foreknowledge, obviously, that these bone things were going to be in here. How? They don't know. But she's an elf. And the storyline that we basically came up with is that she was a descendant of these evil elves who'd been searching for it as well. And she even made a promise by the drow that if you can get in there and get the artifact that I know is in there, I will give you the key to unlock a lot of the magical spells, such as the creating of the undead stuff. I will give you the key to getting that magic out. You'll get all that out of there anyways. They'll help you. You get me the artifact and my master the artifact. And so on. And that's what they make out of the conversation in the letters and such that she has. So they have what they're looking for. They have the scroll, or the, the scimitar. They put it in the chest of holding, because again, when it's in there, it can't be scried, it can't be found. Now when they spin their little amulet, it's pointing back out the door they came. And now they're really mad. Because not only is that drow, you know, caused a lot of pain and suffering, does he have a magic guardian? Now he's sending people against them and using them. And that makes them even angrier. So they make their way out without any real incident. They've killed pretty much everything that was in here. Well, that was already dead, you know. And they make their way back out. They make it through the trap again. And yes, I made them roll. But they all made it through the trap. They get back outside. They decide not to go back to that camp in case she cast any spells. because. But the, the amulet is now showing to the south. So it does let them leave the desert and get back into the drier area. Because the... Again, that was to the northwest, if you will. So now they're going almost south, but they can go back into the trees and head south, so they're not dealing with the heat any longer. So they get out there, and they start heading southwest towards where the next ambulance is pointing at them. Even angrier at this drow, because now they feel played. They did apologize to Michael, by the way, <laughs> for, for assuming, and he was like, I was just trying to save you, but I couldn't yell anything. I realized I couldn't make a noise. You know? And they're like, oh, totally understandable. We're sorry for not trusting you there. <laughs> but they then continue southwest, trying to catch up to this drow, because this drow is, is definitely messing with them, and they're tired of that. But that being said, 
that's where we're going to call it for today. Um, it's a good stopping point because we've got one more big chunk to do. Um, we're actually, let me see, there are probably going to be two more episodes before we get to what you would consider an end of a chapter. If it was the season finale, if you will. We've probably got two. The third one will probably be that. Maybe the end, maybe in the second one. Just depends on how much we can get knocked out in the next episode. Um, but we're, we're heading towards something relatively big. Uh, so I'm pretty excited to get there. Because um, it will be very, very cool. Uh, but that being said, we are uh, going to call that a day. Thank you very much if you've come by and hung out with me today. I appreciate you hanging out for the stream. Uh, if you haven't already and you enjoyed yourself, please click the like button. But if you haven't, make sure you hit the uh, subscribe button. That way you can see all my videos and tutorials and Merge World stuff as it comes out. Uh, you can also go to my website, uh, onlydraven.com. Uh, there you'll find pictures of many of the different uh, actors and such that I use as the basis of these characters, so if you're not familiar with them, uh, you head over there. I still have to add uh, Michael, or I have to add the Drow over there still, and I'm going to put up some of the new uh, Merge World art that we showed. If you're new here, if you didn't weren't here at the beginning, I'll show that off one more time. Uh, this is the new Merge World symbol. I'm about to cover my face. This is what the new thumbnails and such are going to look like on iTunes and such. Again, this is available as an iTunes audio podcast at absolutely no charge. If you'd like to swing by. Um, iTunes, just search Merged Worlds. It's all one word, M-E-R-G-E-D-W-O-R-L-D-S. If you do a search for that, uh, you'll find the podcast. So if you'd like to listen to this again, or you'd like to listen to it better as an audio podcast, totally free there. I would appreciate it if you have iTunes access. If you wouldn't mind swinging by and subscribing, maybe dropping a rating or a review, it would mean a lot to me. It would help me out. I appreciate that. Um, but more than anything else, I want to thank everybody who's hung out today. I love telling this story, and I love being able to share it with you guys. Um, thank you as well to everyone who is a member of my membership, um, my mods, um, and uh, those folks who... Um, have joined into the membership. If you're not sure what the membership program is, if you click the join button on any of my YouTube pages, you'll see that there are a lot of different perks and such that come with an ODG membership. Uh, for a small monthly charge, you get access to special fonts, uh, loyalty icons, you get access to special emojis, including some Merge World ones, um, access to members-only threads in the um, ODG Discord, which is open to everybody. The link to that's down here in the bottom of the description as well. Um, or if you're listening to this audio podcast, just go to onlydraven.com and the first page at the top is a link to the Discord. Um, access to early invitations to get into things like multiplayer games. Um, and now that we're opening up the ODG store, within the next couple days, I'll also be posting um, a permanent member's discount on any merchandise anybody may want to get. So there's going to be a, a store discount as well. I'm still working out how to get that applied. And as soon as I can, I will be posting that. So that's a new perk that's going to pop up for everybody. Um, but before I jet, I'll ask, does anybody have any questions about any of the stuff I covered in this episode or even a previous one? Anybody wants to throw anything in chat? If not, that's cool, but I'll give a minute in case anybody has a question. Ugh. Phew, dry throat. So I went a little bit longer than normal. All right. All right. Well, again, thank you everybody for coming by. I appreciate it. Um, if you have any questions, you're watching this later, um, you can definitely throw those down in the comments or you can go to onlydraven.com and the homepage is a place where you can submit feedback there. Or, of course, in the Discord channel, there's a Merge Worlds thread. There's also a Merge Worlds Discord now, which um, we're gonna I'm going to put a link to that up on um, onlydraven.com as well. I just realized I don't have that in here. But if you go to search Merged Worlds on Reddit... 
there's this, I meant to say Reddit, not Discord. There's a Merge Worlds subreddit. If you go to Reddit and search Merge Worlds, uh, we just opened one of those up, so we're hoping to post some new and cool stuff in there as well. So I'm going to call that a day, everybody. Thank you very much for coming by and sharing my story with me. And I look very much forward to sharing it with you again two weeks from today at 8 p.m. Eastern. Two Sundays from now. So thank you very much, everybody, for watching and hanging out today. You all have yourselves a great day.